Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. And welcome once again to another episode of the Retro Redoxbus Cephala Podcast, the only show that celebrates all the things that made growing up awesome. We are part of the Dorkening and Denebriard Podcast Networks, and as always, we are brought to you tonight by Deadly Grounds Coffee, a coffee to die for. <laughs> I am your spooky host. My name is All Hallow Steve for the rest of the month, and with me, as always, are my stop motion animated cohorts. In Nintendo, the gods are best served by those who need their help the least. <laughs> so true. Facts. And Eight Bit Alchemy, release the Kraken. Oh, dude, we we free cracking it right now. I got Yo. nothing nothing on below the shirt. Uh, free, free, free cracking. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> how we roll. Yep. On the Retro Redox Bicephala Podcast. Tonight uh, is an episode that I am so very excited to bring you guys because I've wanted to do this episode for about four freaking years and I don't know why it took me this long, but being as it's the the, mo- the month of monsters, um, I am going to I'm going to do a little little episode on Ray Harryhausen, special effects titan. Uh, I love this guy. You love this guy. Everybody loves this guy. Even if you don't know his name, you know his work. And uh, and with us tonight to help us go on this journey through the age of myth and monsters, we welcome back to the podcast a friend, a screenwriter, the co-host of the Slum Gullion podcast, and one of the funniest guys I know, Mr. Scott Clevenger. I didn't bring an inspirational quote. Was I supposed to? <clears throat> nope. Uh, no, okay, you're you're fine. It, everyone had a thing after they were mm-hmm. introduced, and mm-hmm. I didn't bring anything. I didn't. I <laughs> no, it's, know we were going to be sharing. I'm sorry. No, it's it's fine. I'm not. I'm not upset at all. Um, you're just disappointed. I understand. I'm. Di- I am disappointed too. Yeah. Mm. God. Uh, but anyways, after me now. No, no. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Um, I'm so happy to be here, especially yeah. on this subject because this is something on which I can and have bored people at length. Since I was 12. <laughs> and so now nice. you're getting not paid to do it professionally yeah. here, unprofessionally on our podcast. Perfect. Exactly. I feel like my whole podcast. I feel like everything has been leading up to this. Only I asked you the most current thing I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you a few months ago, uh, like actually like, probably halfway through the year if you wanted to come back on and of course you and your co-host jeff 
Holland uh, were on an episode, uh, I think two years ago, we did an episode where we did fake pitches for, well, we did real pitches for fake movies that are based on board games. games. Yeah, Yeah, for board games. And so it was the board game uh, movie pitch session that we did with you guys, and that was really fun. And I asked if you wanted to come back on. And I gave you a couple of topics, and one of them was Harry House, and you're like, "Oh, oh, no, no, it, it's it's that one. That's the one. <laughs> that is that is absolutely it." There was no, so, there was no debate. There was yeah, no. <laughs> so that's really great. I always love it when we're able to know our friends enough that we uh, we can sort of be like, "Do you think you would want to maybe add to this conversation?" And it's like, "Hell yeah!" You know, like that's always right. that's always great. So get the enthusiasm going. Welcome back. Um, tell people if if you don't mind. What the heck is a slum gullion, and why should they? Why should they want to know? Uh, I don't mind at all, actually. Uh, I mind. I mind a little bit. I'm, it, it's. It seems like you're asking some really personal questions already, and the interview has only started. But that's fine. <laughs> uh, a slum gullion, uh, in our case, is just a podcast that considers all of pop culture our bailiwick. So we named it after uh, a soup that the Irish invented when they had too many things going rotten in their kitchen at the same time. So they would throw them in, in a uh, cast iron skillet or some kind of cauldron, and they would make what Susan O'Connell, who you probably know from uh, Larry uh, uh, Larry Blamire's movies, told me it was called uh, pantry soup. Uh, okay. That's what they called it in her part of Ireland. Otherwise, it's called slum gullion, which is just everything you want to throw in and see what comes out. And that's basically our approach to podcast you guys are so methodical i i respect what you do so much you guys take polls you have guests you're so organized and we just like what do you want to talk about oh, I don't know. no i love i love i love your show i i yeah, your, your show your is, vibe is awesome yeah your show is is a must uh a must for me i i have never missed an episode since i found you guys and uh that was a few that was a good many years ago at this point um in fact, the only thing I wish is that you guys put out more episodes. And I know it's tough. I know like everything with Jeff is tough and everything uh, has been, this hasn't been an easy year for anybody. No. Um, as I mentioned, you're a screenwriter. So you were dealing with a whole bunch of stuff. Strike since, stuff. Since I don't know. Spring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spring. So it's crazy. <clears throat> yeah. But. You know. Well, the, the strike's been settled, so at least for, for writers, we can start thinking about getting back to work. Um, nobody's going to actually start any projects rolling until the actors uh, make their deal. Um, but things are looking up, and in f- fact, things are looking up for Jeff, too, because it looks like he'll be uh, moving into a more stable situation oh, great. pretty shortly. So we hopefully, we're hoping to get back on our, our, our regular schedule, because we've missed it. We've missed yeah. inflicting our opinions on you. Well, you know, I I do love the randomness of like the episode topics. Like, you know, sometimes it's like a bad old movie and that's like, that is my Ballywick, like 100%. And then, then you'll be like, let's just talk about this episode of Star Trek, strange new worlds that was on. Like, that's what I want to talk about this, this week. And there was one case where you did that. And I was like, Oh, I was actually watching the show and I hadn't caught up yet. So I had to wait. Until I, because I know you guys spoil everything. So. Oh yeah, we are we so are spo- these spoilers. Spoiler alert: the Slum Gullion spoils shit. That's probably what we should have called <laughs> the podcast. Just call it spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. 
I know, I know like every episode that you spoil something, there's like a moment where one of you are like, Oh, uh, should we say, uh, no, wait, wait, it's us. Who cares? (laughs) Who gives a shit? We have to be true to ourselves. (laughs) Spoil it. But there's always that like moment Mm -hmm. of unsureness. You're like, well, should I feel bad right now? No, the only time, the only time we actually gave into that, that, uh, human impulse was, uh, on a show where we had Larry Blamire on, who had brought a movie for us to talk about. Um, it was a terrific British uh, thriller from the 60s. And we'd all seen it. And we were we started talking about it. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's be careful with the spoilers. And we're going, well, that's <laughs> kind of our thing. And he, he, shamed, he shamed us on mic. So for that one episode... Just that right. one episode. It's, it's, it's from the 60s. But, you know, if you're getting people interested... To mm-hmm. want to watch the yeah. new thing, even if, if it's new to them, even if it's you know a freaking hundred years old, who cares? Uh, yeah, there there is something to that, I think. But you know, hey, <clears throat> I know what I'm getting into with you guys. That that is why I watched the episode first, and then I then I imbibed the slum gully. <laughs> Um, I also think it's kind of fair game to, you know, be like, if I listen to a a multi-hour long podcast about a subject matter, there's a very real chance that this is going to get spoiled. Like, ultimately, how much can you talk about something, (laughs) especially a movie, without talking about everything that happens in it? So, like, there is also, like, a level of, you know, kind of listener responsibility. It's like, look, man, if you didn't want spoilers, like, why are you listening? What what do you think we're going to do? Talk about the trailer? (laughs) Like, <laughs> well, you know what the Slum Gullion does do. that that we yeah. don't do here on Retrodoctopus is they have a Jeff, and Jeff <laughs> Jeff <laughs> likes to blame Time Dick, but really it's just Jeff, and he is the one who is like, you guys will be in mid sentence, he'll be like, um, yeah, um, so I think that about does it. We're we're done. Uh, so uh, see you later, bye. And it's like, <laughs> whoa, they 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 keep it neat and tight, neat and tight. Yeah, no, he is he 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 cops to being the time Nazi. That's true. Um, and he does that for me because I just sometimes I, I look at the you know two hour long uh, raw footage that we would have and I go, I don't want to <laughs> edit this. Oh, this is gonna take forever. <laughs> and just so it's like, hey, hey, you ever gonna put out that uh, show we recorded three months ago? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm getting that. So <laughs> if he knows if he keeps it Eventually. short. Someday. He keeps. It sh- I'll turn it around quickly. So. Uh, oh, gotcha. But now, uh, but we may be going back to longer uh, episodes now because he got a he got a new computer, so he's going to be editing. Him. Nice. I don't care. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm there for it for sure, and I think people should definitely check out your show. It's really fun pop culture. You guys are a hoot, and uh, I want to say you're kind of like an old married couple, but <laughs> I mean it's not it's not really really what you are though. You're kind of like old college roommates that used to get yeah. stoned together and haven't seen each other in person for like 20 years or something. And, and, and I don't know, there's, there's just, there's some like something there it's palatable and it's uh it's, it's part of the magic of the show. And I really dig it. It, it is weird because we have never, we have, <laughs> I've known Jeff for, I can't, I well over a decade, maybe going on 15 years. We've never met in person. We've never seen each other. That's so crazy. So, yeah. yeah. Because you, he always says like, you know, three hours behind me is Scott, mm-hmm. you know, and you're in California and he's in Midwest or something. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's so weird. I, I just take it on faith that he exists. Yeah. It's, it's very possible. There's a, <laughs> never seen a, him figment, a figment, a figment. Or anything. 
<laughs> who, who can say? Who can say? I mean, there Stable is video footage of him, but yeah. it's possible it's been forged. Deep fakes. Um, <clears throat> deep fakes. Okay, so let's dive into the topic at hand, which is Mr. Ray Harryhausen, special effects titan. Um, so we're each going to pick pick we've picked and we'll present just one movie for you guys tonight and uh but before we do that um i got a little history for him and uh, we're going to explain the way he would actually uh animate his models and and just get into a little brief bit of it about that but before i do that i just wanted to ask you guys you know what was your personal introduction into the work of Ray Harryhausen. Like, even if you didn't realize that, okay, that big monster on the screen was done by a guy that has a name, like you don't necessarily need to know that it was this man doing it, but what was your first introduction? Like looking back that you're like, wow, that thing is, is something really, really cool. Um, I'll, I'll open it up to Scott, our guest. Um, if, if you can remember back to the first time, maybe. I, Would you tell well, us about your first time, Scott? With <laughs> oh. well, there was a lot <laughs> of chafing. I only learned later about moisturizing before. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I pretty sure the first one I saw complete because I saw um, bits and pieces of movies that turned out to be his on TV. But you know, when you're a kid and you just back then, you would just you came at every movie, every movie, every TV show, you were joining it already in progress. You know, it's mm -hmm. just what was on the TV. So mm -hmm. I saw, I, I know I saw um, bits of uh, 20 million miles to earth uh, specifically. And this is something a little kid would never forget. Uh, the wrestling match between the Ymir and the elephant in Rome. Yes. Saw yes. that. Mm -hmm. And I remember that never forgot it. Uh, saw uh, the end of mighty Joe young. I remember that because when he's saving the orphans, because I remember, oh, I, I, I really need to see what the beginning of this is. Why is that? Why is that gorilla so big? I really I wanted an explanation. I was a really <laughs> tedious child. I wanted I wanted so much explained to me. God, the adults hated me. But the first one I know I saw complete beginning to end was the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, because I saw it when it came when it was in theaters in 1973. My mother took me there and dropped me and my best friend off at the theater and came back, you know, two hours later and <laughs> saw, saw two little boys with their eyes spinning in their head. Wow. <laughs> that was like, it's, I had never seen anything like that on the big screen. Um, Cause I was used to seeing, you know, Disney movies and, you know, just the usual crap the little kid could, could get into, but the golden Bridge of Sinbad, not that it was violent or, or risque in any way, but it just took, chances with your suspension of disbelief yeah um and i was so there for it uh and, and it, it really astonished me because um it they weren't a lot of it weren't just monsters i mean you know there was like they would have like actual animals they would you know they would they would have a tiger and they would yeah um, they're yeah. like that's incredibly brave that you're doing that because right. everyone knows what a tiger looks like you know, yep. nobody looks like a Rhetosaurus. No one knows what a Rhetosaurus looks like because mm -hmm. that's a fake dinosaur. But um, I thought this guy is amazing. And then he came out with Clash of the Titans in 81 and I completely turned on him. But that's another story. Oh, completely turned on. Well, that was at the end of his career. So at least yeah. 
he didn't continue to put out things you weren't happy with. At least. No, I waited until he was down before I kicked him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain. Um, I'll explain. It's not a video. Okay, we'll get there. One of us has picked Clash of the Titans, yes. so there may be. Oh, some I figured. I figured somebody sure on that one. Yeah. This was uh, that was actually my introduction. Clash of the Titans. You know, mm -hmm. I was born in '79, so you know it. it it was everywhere. I remember just, I, it's weird. Like the core memories that stick with you for some reason, I will never forget. I don't remember what, what the kid, who the kid was, but there was a kid and I was in first grade or maybe it was even kindergarten. I remember <clears throat> there was some kid at lunch that had a clash of the Titans lunchbox. And I thought it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my life. And it was one of those, <laughs> you know, sculpted metal wow. lunch boxes. And mm -hmm. What a bad this ass. was kind of this was kind of at the end of that because the 80s was the decade of the clamshell uh plastic yellow or red or blue lunchbox with a sticker on it oh like all the lunch right. boxes oh, dude. Like yeah that. this lunchbox is really cool yeah <laughs> it's got the, the pegasus the, fighting the, the kraken right yep yeah the metal ones from the 70s were like you know shaped and you know incredible i mean and they've come back and i mean it's like vinyl it's it's a thing that people have nostalgia for and now there are new versions of the old things and new versions of new things that are made like the old things um and i mean i i saw recently in a comic book store they had like four different uh, tmnt the last ronin metal lunch boxes i mean oh. it's like it's like the coolest freaking things mm. but yeah so i just for some reason i will never forget that kid but yeah i mean uh that movie blew me away it was definitely the first harry house movie i saw and um <clears throat> i think that that medusa sequence was probably one of the first scary really scary sequences i i think i remember in a movie like you know because it's it's a horror sequence in a non-horror movie and right. I think that really stuck with me and, and then the Kraken at the end. And, but I just, I was impressed with the wealth of different creatures. Like you're saying, Scott, like it's not just all monsters. Like, you know, there's, you know, Pegasus is basically just a horse and then you see him mm -hmm. spread his wings and it's like, okay, now it's magic. And then they have just the vulture. There's like the giant vulture that they, you know, it's like almost unnecessary he would animate characters he would come up with characters it's like well you could have accomplished this in a much easier way but he's like no no no. this is an excuse i'm gonna i'm gonna put another another creature here and have him just be like a you know a bus for the sleeping ghost of the princess uh yeah yeah it's gonna be a giant vulture it's like well she's sleeping couldn't he just like like magic her there it's like yes but no we're gonna do a vulture so i don't know i i, I thought that was just he always but. he always did that he always made more work for himself which is funny yeah. because he was always fighting for bigger budgets like in um what was it it came, it came from beneath the sea uh the big octopus yes yep. Uh, yep isn't even an octopus he because he didn't have the budget to add those extra two arms it's only it's a it's a sextopus it only has six arms right. when you count them. right so right. but but then you look at like I think it's Jason and the Argonauts where that poor blind guy is trying to trying to get lunch and he's being harassed by harpies. Um, yes, you could have you could have done the harpies with actresses in blue body paint and you know cut back mm -hmm. and forth and you you could have. But no, he has a human being and then he has the, the claymation harpies and then they attack the human being and then he turns into claymation. So it's like you had a human actor, but now you got to have a double for him just because you want it to look good. 
what kind of thinking is that, Mr. Harrison? Right. Yeah, when, when the puppet, yeah. right, when the puppet would interact with the person, it there was a line. You could get to a certain part and you could have like Jason sword fighting skeletons, but if they're really gonna grapple or something, then he would need a little bit more. And the next level version of that was he would have to animate a little puppet version of the person. In fact, he said later in life that um the thing he animated more than any other type of thing in his whole career was people because of all those little people that were constantly being carried off and picked up and thrown right. around and all that stuff. He's like, right. did more people than anything. Um, but very cool. What about uh, you, you guys, Joe and Tim, do you guys remember your first, first Harryhausen monster movie? Maybe uh, like, like you, Steve, uh, my introduction was clash of the Titans, but at the time I didn't know it was, Harryhausen, right? I, 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 I just like either. I just like never as a kid, I never paid attention to that kind of sure. stuff. Sure, neither did I. Neither. Did um, I. And I have seen clips on TV of the other movies with the stop motion, and didn't realize it was from the same person. Mm. So yeah, it's like he made seventeen movies, and not all of them are like studio releases. I don't think there was a a number of them that I didn't really know anything about that was but he's he's credited with making 17 movies and then he made some shorts and stuff that are on that list but for films but yeah he always you know uh he had his stamp of his style and he was always improving he was always uh coming up with new solutions and different ways to be more cinematic and to do things better like you know with grappling with the the humans and stuff like that um there's a there's a pterodactyl scene that's in uh, 1 million years BC where a pterodactyl comes down, picks up a person and you can really see where it kind of dips down behind a little bit of cover and there, you know, that it comes back up with the clay guy and it looks, it's very noticeable compared to in the Valley of Guanji, the same thing happens and it is much better. Um, so he was always trying to improve and look at what he had done and figure out new ways of doing things. But it's very interesting. Uh, Tim, what about you as far as like first, first time or. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of funny. Um, I mean, I did not, you know, have any relevant, uh, Ray Harryhausen movies growing up. I was born in 91. So, um, it was a decade past his last movie. Um, but funny enough, uh, my, like, I mean, he's a name that you hear all the time, you know, you're just paying attention to various different, you know, people talking about movies or whatever mm -hmm. like i've heard the name never saw any of his movies but the thing that put him like back in my mind was monsters inc right uh, because monsters was, inc they go to harry house yeah they have the restaurant and it's yeah. like just an homage and it's literally nothing else to it it's just an homage they named this japanese restaurant harry Housen's because why not? Um, right. It's all about monsters. But yeah, I really had no experience with Harry House growing up, um, but have seen a number of his movies um, with you and then also for this episode. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I what I will say is that, you know, Harry Housen's work definitely influenced all stop motion animation and um, movies that were near and dear to my heart growing up were, uh, I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas, um, but actually more than that was James and the Giant Peach. Um, okay, yeah. I watched that movie a ton. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of these movies wouldn't have done what they did um, without Harryhausen's, like, groundwork and obviously the people who came before him, too. Um, so, yeah, it's like the stop motion 
aesthetic was definitely a part of my childhood and it's still something that i see and i like it fills you like with that childlike kind of wonder and so yeah you know, going back and watching harry house and it's like you know feeling like i'm reliving all of these amazing times of like oh the first time i saw nightmare before christmas or james and the giant peach or like all these other different ones that use stop motion um so yeah, it's like without realizing it, he definitely influenced my yeah, childhood. But I right. couldn't put a name to it really until you educated me more, and uh, and just that, that one-off reference in uh, Monsters Inc. Right, which is kind of funny. Right, yeah, it's it's fun going back and learning, you know, what came what came before and influenced the thing that you love now. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. he definitely is one of those guys, and you know, even though he didn't, you know, invent the medium, he did progress the medium like a lot and um yeah a, lo a lot of people you know i think everybody today who's who's working in in stop motion owes everything to him and would say that you know yeah um obviously for him he he had a he had a starting point as well so let me get into a little bit of backstory yeah and tell you a little bit more about the man who was born raymond frederick harryhausen he was born in june 29th 1920 he uh, he actually lived to the ripe old age of uh, ninety two. Passed away in two thousand thirteen, so he had a good long life. Nineteen twenty, yeah. he was born in Los Angeles, California. Even though, let's face it, England has claimed him at this point because he did live there for a long time. So basically, every documentary, every every Harryhausen thing that comes out nowadays that's a retrospective, it's all it's all it's all British, very British. Brits yep. love love them some Harryhausen. Um, at the age of thirteen, young Ray saw a film at Grauman's Chinese Theater that would change the trajectory of his life forever. That movie was 1933's King Kong. To say that the technical effects in that film wowed audiences of the time would be an understatement, and Ray was no different. Stop motion animation in King Kong was created by just one dude, special effects pioneer Willis O'Brien who had previously made The Lost World in 1925, so he had already done a dinosaur picture before King Kong, even though King Kong is the one, obviously, he's remembered most for. Um, and I think that it's really important to know that at the time, Ray spoke about this a lot. Um, at the time, it really was movie magic. This, nobody knew at all how... Right. This guy did all the things that he did. Nobody knew how they made King Kong. Nobody knew how they made the dinosaurs in the Lost World. They did not know. It was <clears throat> five or so years after King Kong came out, uh, before the studio was basically talking about it, because they wanted it to be magic. They wanted it to be this element of the unknown where you are so extra wowed you know once you know how the sausage is made it's it's a lot less spectacular and uh right and so this was this was a thing so ray goes home he's age 13 he's like oh my god my life is different now i want to do that i don't know how that is done but i want to do that and um i guess a friend of his dad worked for a movie studio that um it was the same studio that uh, had put out King Kong and th through a mutual acquaintance, he was able to get Willis O'Brien uh, in touch with his son. They like, they talked. So I guess at, before they met, um, he was able to tell secret, 
you know, secret spy stuff. Okay, really, this is how they did it. So the world did not know yet, but Ray knew because of this weird connection that his dad's friend had because he worked in the studio or something. So it's like, okay, you take a puppet and you move it a little bit and you take a picture and then you do it a million more times and you get yourself a movie. So he took this idea and he started sculpting his own models. By 1935, he had begun working on his earliest test films. The first being shot in his backyard was an Ice Age world inhabited by a cave bear made out of his mom's coat and a woolly mammoth. And honestly, the woolly mammoth is impressive as hell. Like, it really looks good. I mean, the cave bear is hilarious, but the woolly mammoth is impressive. And they're kind of just like, you know, there's no story. They're just kind of dicking around. They're just, you know, walking around and like looking at each other and like, but it's like the first thing he ever did. And uh, it's honestly pretty great. Um, and at the time he said he, he didn't know how to take one frame with a, with a camera, with a movie camera. He's like, mm. how do you do that? Yeah. There, I don't I don't have any way of doing that. He didn't have a ca- he didn't have a movie camera at all. He was able to borrow one from a like a friend or something or a family friend. And he's like, but it's it was like you just press record and it starts recording or whatever. However, it worked. I mean, he did describe a button, so it's not like he was turning a big wheel like I don't know, I picture Fritz Lang doing. But um, you know, he said that he would have to press the button as fast as he could. And sometimes it was one frame. Sometimes it was three frames. Like, so it was very, very herky jerky, but it was all he could do. He didn't know what, what else to do. So his next, um, for his next test footage, he made a bunch of dinosaurs. He's like, okay, got it. Dinosaurs. He, he has said, uh, were his first love. And so, you know, he went back, he made a brontosaurus, he made a stegosaurus and, they just, you know, kind of tromping around the jungle, just doing, you know, similar types of things. And it was that film that uh, Willis O'Brien actually saw. Um, somehow he was able to come down. He agreed to come down and like, look at and, like, there's this boy and like, oh, you got to come down and meet this kid. He's like your idol. And um, he idolizes, you're his idol. And, and, and he's like doing all this stuff in his backyard. He's ripping up his mom's coat. He's, you know, all this stuff. And uh, and so Willis O'Brien, the guy who did King Kong, literally came and saw, checked out his operation. All right, kid, show me what you got. And uh, he was very impressed. And um, one of the things that uh, Ray said that uh, that that O'Brien had said was he, he said he was really proud of the Stegosaurus. He said he was really proud of it. He thought he really did a good job. And honestly, it is pretty damn good and it, it does have like all that bumpy warty texture that he always worked in on his reptiles even mm-hmm. then and uh it is very impressive like i couldn't today make a better model for sure and uh and he said that o'brien said he's like kid you're you're uh you gotta work on this anatomy stuff he's like you're uh the saw so- the, the the legs look like sausages there, there's no bones in there like you know you gotta you gotta study before you're ready to do this so Ray took it upon himself to learn a ton of stuff. He, he took um, art lessons. He took acting lessons. He wanted his creatures to be able to actually act and perform, not just move. They had to actually right. be characters. Make noise, that was like a whatever. big thing. Right. And, uh, and he studied anatomy. He studied all these different things. And um, 1947 rolls around, right? So he's been into this since 1933 from King Kong, made his first thing ever, the little Ice Age 
cave bear short with the woolly mammoth back in 35. Now it's 1947. He gets hired as an assistant animator under the supervision of none other than his hero, Willis O'Brien, for his first major film, Mighty Joe Young, which for those who don't know Mighty Joe Young, it's a giant gorilla movie. Now, it's a smaller giant gorilla than King Kong was, but it's still a giant gorilla made by Willis O'Brien and also a lot of the, the crew and even some of the cast of the original King Kong. So can you imagine a better dream job for like, I mean, right. Are you kidding Working with me? this idol on a giant ape movie? I mean, like the, the most unbelievable thing. I mean, that's how I'm sure people felt about, you know, working on the Phantom Menace at the time, you know, it must've been the, the most like dream come true thing ever. I mean, certainly Ewan McGregor seems like that was true for him. Um, so that was 1947. Let's fast forward a bit. Before we dive into our, our first two presentations that we're going to give, um, I just want to talk about the process of his animation, uh, which once he, um, Scott, you mentioned it, it came from Beneath the Sea, and that was his first, um, first ever movie with Charles, Charles, I think his name's Sneer? Schneer. Charles schneer it's, it's, it sounds like an insult schneer oh yeah friggin schneer i see you over there schneering it schneering in the corner in the dark by yourself um who he uh he would go on to produce 12 movies with with harryhausen like like they worked together for a very long time so th so that was his very first collaboration with charles schneer and um and they decided to let's market this new version of stop motion animation instead of calling it stop motion animation that's too clunky we need something snappy we need something we can throw on the movie poster put in the trailer kid you know and so charles sneer came up with the name dynamation and um that was the new miracle of the screen dynamation as so many things claim to be um hey, if, I'm I, gonna if hand i can just can I just yes. jump in real quickly? Because oh, yeah, sure. I remember Dynamation. Dynamation is probably the reason I went to see my first Harry Housen movie in a theater because they pushed Dynamation. New, and it basically was that big, brawny voiced uh, announcer for the trailer New Miracle of the Screen, Dynamation. And of course, it's one of those, you know, three quarter uh, sort of heroic. Uh, logos where it's just huge. It looks like Dynamation is a mountain range that's emerged from the earth. <laughs> and you wanted to see if you were a kid, you wanted to see it, and then you I don't know what it is, it. but I need it. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know what it is, but I have to have it. And then you went to it and you go, Oh, it's stop motion, okay, <laughs> right. right? So, but it's a bit. color, it was stop motion in color, which up to that point, right. I'd never seen stop motion in color, so that right. was new, that was exciting, right? Right, so I'll hand, I'll hand the explanation of dynamation off to 8 bit, sure. Uh, yeah, so I mean, like you said. Scott, you know, it's basically just uh, stop motion and color, right? Or at least that's what you would think. But truly, not that the audience could really appreciate this, um, but what Dynamation was, was it was the, like, unique unique technique that Harryhausen had developed to not only do stop motion, but to insert it into the scene as if it felt like it was sandwiched in between layers of actual footage. So, you know, you have certain movies with 
giant monsters or whatever where it just kind of like cuts to people running away and then it cuts back to the monster and back and forth and it just feels like they're two separate things um but you know you're just filling in the blanks um but with dynamation and what harryhausen wanted to do was to really make it feel like the monster was within a given scene with actors and with things going on. Uh, so um, I will read a bit of a blurb from uh, Wikipedia that kind of puts it in in some kind of easy to understand terms and I can explain it more um, if need be. But uh, so on Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, uh, this was the first movie that claimed to use the technique of dynamation according to this. Um, and this technique splits the background and the foreground of pre-shot live action footage into two separate images into which he would animate a model or models, seemingly integrating the live action with the models. The background would be used as a miniature rear screen with his models animated in front of it, re-photographed with an animation capable camera to combine those two elements together. The foreground element matted out to leave a black space. Then the film was re rewound and everything except the foreground element matted out so the foreground element would now photograph in the previously blacked out area this created the effect uh, that the animated model was sandwiched in between the two live action uh, background and foreground elements right into the final live action scene so insane so um, if it's really neat yeah so if he needed something to be in front of the creature essentially like he had to do it like three times he had to animate it only once, but he had to film it three times because you're blacking out the part of the, the the film that actually has the creature in it and the part that doesn't have the creature in it. And it's this whole like complicated thing. It's like, what? Yeah, he it's would use so these panes insane. of glass. And so he would have a rear projection. So we would have the movie being projected onto a background and then he would animate his monster in front of it. But whatever part of the the projected image he wanted to appear in front of the monster would get blacked out on a mm -hmm. glass screen would expose the film to just like a third glass screen. It's like, yep. Like, like in front of the, of his other camera, there'd be two, you know, a projector all the stuff in the middle and his other camera. And then once the scene was finished, he'd go back, replace it with a camera, uh, with a screen that now had the inverse blacked out. So now the film was only being right. exposed to the foreground element. Everything else is not. And then it would uh, create the sandwich effect. But that, yeah, in yeah. a nutshell, is what Dynamation really was getting at, which is super cool and um, a, a, a totally unique uh, style that he developed on top of just you know mm. being amazing at, at stop motion. Um, but I think that was honestly lost. And there's, like you said, so many of those different sensationalized, you know, like Technicolor, Dynamation, like they all they always had these like buzzy Scalarama. Yeah, right. Exactly. Larry's yeah. Scalarama. Like there's just a, uh, you know, a buzz to it that makes people want to yeah. go see it. But you're like, what, what is it? Oh, I don't know. I just want to see it. <laughs> yeah. it what's Retson? I don't know. But they but don't really explain it even, you know? So, um, but yeah, anyway, long and short of it, that's animation. Yeah. Nice. It wasn't, it wasn't advanced. It was a technological advance because if I, I can't, I wish I, I had a better grasp of this so I could explain it, but I believe in King Kong and definitely in, um, uh, the Lost World, they had to use mirrors when they were trying to layer those elements. So you always got this kind of weird little distortion. Um, so, uh, but he actually put elements directly on, in, amongst other elements, to create a composite, which was new, I believe. I, I read an explanation of it once. So, yeah, he, he actually improved on the way Willis O'Brien shot his animations. I don't know if he improved on 
the way they were animated necessarily because that's right right it, dynamation more refers to stop motion animation but the compositing technique right is the difference yeah and and i mean right. it, it really is interesting and like he really did so very many things and there are certain shots that even today just blow my mind so you have the skills of just the skills of an animator so like the things that blow my mind you know everybody always says the the skeleton fight at the end of jason and the argonauts how many skeletons is he animating all at once and how many people have to match up to all these different skeletons i mean it's it's truly mind-boggling that that was able to work also the the heads of the hydra in that movie like he said he's like well yeah if you know you if your phone rings and you go answer the phone you come back you can't remember which heads were moving in what direction it's like hmm. uh, you know it's it's thinking about that it seems impossible it truly seems impossible and then there's the uh the scene in guanji where you know they're lassoing the t-rex uh, and there's like four cowboys on horseback and they're, you know, throwing their lassos. Yeah, around this, such a cool you know, stop motion puppet that's not even there around the, its head. And it looks 100 percent perfect. It's just insane how good that that scene still looks. I don't understand and, why why Guanji, the Valley Guanji did not start a whole uh, a whole trend of cowboy dinosaur movies, because, first of all, it was everything that I loved as a kid at that time. Westerns were all over TV. We kids are born loving dinosaurs. It's just genetic. And <laughs> right. there was this, I thought that was the greatest movie ever. And I thought it was going to change everything. And it didn't, it just dropped like yeah. a stone. Nobody, it's like, it's an amazing film. And I, I, you know, I had Ford Apache by Marx, you know, I had all those Western toys. And as soon as I would get a new dinosaur toy, they would fight the Cowboys. It just—it seemed like they left so much. You're leaving money on the table, Hollywood. Kids want kids want this, and they just wouldn't give it to us. It's so weird. Yeah, that that really did not. That was not one of the uh, the successful ventures, unfortunately. But that is uh, that is one. You I know why pe I, people were freaked out by uh, genre mixing back then. You think is that is that what it was? I don't. I people people liked their genres separate back then they i think people had to get tired of individual genres for a while before they wanted to see them get mm -hmm. mashed up but i mean usually when people things, back then hated shepherd's pie oh it's exactly. just a whole lot of shit all together they wanted they all they wanted were ingredients eat, eaten separately gotcha. like i like everything in the shepherd's pie but i don't want it cooked together that's don't disgusting. touch yeah. right like you yeah, got that, your that's, chocolate that's me as well i hate <laughs> shepherd's pie I like everything I separately, really but not that. together. Like, oh, you got your, your chocolate and my peanut butter. No, you got your peanut butter and my chocolate. Okay, it doesn't matter. Throw it out. <laughs> <laughs> I uh I, I'm a I'm a fan of Guanji. Um for sure none of us none of us picked it tonight but it's a good one and uh i mean i'm i'm just a western guy too so um i i just it's so charming and uh it's 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 unnecessarily italian though like some of his films were and it's funny like you you start to learn like some of the movies were filmed in a place only because he realized that he would get a free vacation there if mm -hmm. he like like because he would get to go on <laughs> on location and he's like well i just want to get a feel for the place because like he's just going to be in his studio for the next you know nine to 36 months or whatever the hell you know animating the thing and uh 
and stuff but they'd agree the studio would be like yeah sure okay you can you can be on set in rome or in you know wherever um, well you can't you you'd be surprised how you actually would probably not be surprised at all how much of that actually went on and how many people were in surprising movies because they wanted to you know go to Chinachita and, and work in Rome for a couple of weeks. Um, there's a story that the that the director of uh, Where the Lost World tells about why uh, Fred Fred Williamson is in that movie for no reason. Okay, uh, he wasn't in the script. Uh, his character appeared nowhere in the film, but the night before they started shooting, I think his name was David Winters. I think it's something like that. Uh, he he met Fred Williamson at a party. At the studio, it was because he had just wrapped a movie and he was fit, he was going to be flying out back to the U.S. And he's, oh, you're starting a movie, huh? What's it about? So Winters, you know, told him what the movie was about. And he goes, can you write a, a part in, in it for me? And he goes, oh, I, and he's thinking, oh, does he want to work with me? That's rather flattering. He goes, I really don't want to leave. I, I, it's like it's like a bunch of restaurants I haven't gone to yet. And I just, you know, I'd like to stay in Rome for a little while. Just write me some, anything. I don't care. So yeah, he wrote him a, a terrible part that made no sense and kind of ruined the movie. And uh, he got another big, he extended his vacation. I had nothing but respect for that. Because I yeah. I have been sent on places to work on movies and in every single case, it was a shithole I never would have gone to on holiday. So I've never had a free vacation. <laughs> At least you go to all, they send you to all the armpits. Nobody wants the armpits. Yeah, Mobile, Alabama. Twice. You want the breast, chest, neck, and shoulders, maybe the cheek, not, not the <laughs> armpit. Yes, I, I I want the downy cheek. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen the bubble. Well, you know, Frankenfish, um oh. Frankenfish was a swamp, but it needed to be in a swamp. So I mean, I don't know if you did, did you get to go anywhere for Frankenfish? Oh yeah, Frankenfish was the first movie uh, I worked at on set. Um, I got a yeah, it, that was weird because I, I got a call and, and uh, from the producer, who I wasn't expecting to hear from because he was he had gone off to Alabama to shoot a couple of horror movies, and he says, "Yeah, so uh, our script is terrible. Do you want to work on this? Uh, you want to come out and rework the script?" I go, "Sure." He says, "Can you leave today?" How much trouble is this script in? No, I'd like to do some laundry. <laughs> <laughs> stat. Jeez. We need the script doctor. Stat. So I got wow. I got there two weeks before we started shooting. They were still casting because so many people had looked at the script to go, yeah, no. Yeah. So I said, all right, <laughs> just do 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 a quick draft so we can go out to actors. But uh, um, yeah, and the, some parts of uh, Mobile are very nice, but uh, not back then. They've yeah. it's gotten better. <clears throat> last it's got, movie hour. gotten better since Forrest Gump lived there. But yeah, it was close to it was uh, there was a swamp just uh, just up the Tensaw River. So hmm. Lake Burns it was called. There you go. But I know that that was the case uh for 20 million miles to earth for sure. Harry Housen joked about that and laughed about it, you know, later. Yeah, I I've I've seen him talk about that. He's like, "Yeah, I just literally only said it in Rome so I could go there." <laughs> It's like so funny, but, um, but anyway, so good stuff. Um, I think if we're good on dynamation, we're good on the life of Raymond. Um, we're ready to deliver a couple of picks for you guys. If you're, if you're happy to give them you guys good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Oh yeah. Okay. 
let's let's just do it. We're almost uh yeah, we're 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 doing okay for time because some of some of our recording time was just chit-chat at the beginning. So let's do that. Let's start with Scott because uh we've picked these, you know, each picked a movie for so we have four movies, and I'm gonna we're gonna deliver them in the order they were received, or I should say, you know, published, released there, the order in which they were released. There we go. So Without further ado, Mr. Scott Clevenger, what do you got tonight? My selection is Ray's, I would say, first major film where he was primarily responsible for the animation. And that's uh, 1953's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Now, this movie has a lot of historical significance because it set the pace and the tone and established a lot of the tropes for creature features to come. And as we know, in the 50s and up into the early 60s, there was a lot of creature features to come. Um, Beast is based loosely on a Ray Bradbury story, uh, which was called The Foghorn. And uh, they actually, I was surprised how much his name featured in the advertising. Because uh, I'm not used to them promoting writers. But back then, when people were literate, and read stories. <laughs> right, uh, that, yeah, that excited people back then. Uh, also, uh, the Foghorn wasn't in some, you know, ghetto pulp. It wasn't in Amazing Stories. It was in Saturday Evening Post. Right. So a lot of a lot of normies read it. But there is. I, I also picked it because, as I was, um, as I was saying to Steve, it it's a movie. It's a creature feature. It's a humble genre film, but it has a dark poetry about it that I find very moving and very eloquent. And creature features with dark poetry are kind of thin on the ground. Um, King Kong has it. Yep. Uh, Mighty Joe Young has it. Uh, Son of Kong does not have it because... <laughs> Kong, Kong is a fairy tale. Son of Kong is a cash grab. <laughs> but when you were talking about how he took acting classes, that really, that I, I sat up at that because the thing that really distinguished Willis O'Brien, and I think the most important thing besides just the technical knowledge that he learned, that uh, Harry hasn't learned from him, was how to make your monsters act. How to, how to make them break your heart. I mean, there's that point at the end of Kong where you know he's he's absorbed quite a bit of gunfire from the biplanes, and he's holding on, you know, with one hand to the uh, to the radio mast on top of the Empire State Building, and he's kind of swaying, and and he rubs his eyes. He just looks like oh, you just want to pick him up and put him to bed. It's just you feel <laughs> so bad for him, and the same thing happens, and and I the whole movie builds up to it because. The Beast of 20, from 20,000 Fathoms, the monster is, um, it's a natural disaster. It's a moving natural disaster. It it wrecks a lighthouse. It destroys a boat that it mistakes for prey. Um, it causes a bit of a ruckus. And then it gets in the city and all hell goes, you know, everything goes to hell. But it's just an animal. You don't, it, they don't try to make it um, evil. It's just, it's just an animal in a place it shouldn't be reacting the way animals do. And when it it's dying at the very end, you get that same sense like this poor thing was 
ripped basically from millions of years of slumber, thrown into our modern world, can't understand anything. All it wants to do is get back to where it, the only place it knows, which is its breeding grounds um, in New York Harbor. And it gets killed by, in the most humiliating way possible, by Lee Van Cleef. So <laughs> there are more humiliating people to be killed by than Lee Van Cleef. I don't, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, did, did, did you see his performance in that? He's got basically one line, and it is so funny because they go, uh, Do you know how to shoot a, a, a rifle grenade? He goes, uh, Well, I said, I pick my teeth with them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I rif a, rifle grenades for breakfast. Well, yeah. Do you know what a radioactive isotope is? Nope. But if you can load it, I can shoot it. Like, Stop <laughs> asking him questions. His, he's his too American. He got dumb he, answers. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, oh, and also just on, uh, this has got nothing to do with anything. So I'm going to, uh, but that's what I specialize in. Yes, please. Uh, there are a bunch of people in this movie which, by the way, it was not. It's it's a Warner Brothers release, but it was an independent film, like a lot of them were. It was it was made with with cobbled together money, and then uh, Warner Brothers bought it and released it. But the number of people who were in who were in Mystery Science Theater episodes and in this movie is pretty astonishing. Really? Including, yeah, um, including the first guy who gets killed. Um, okay. He's one of the cops from the Crawling Hand. Uh, the guy, if you if you remember the hillbilly with the the goat beard from um, Giant Spider Invasion, guy wanders around in his uh, his uh, union suit the whole movie, cheating on his wife, dies again in in an almost as embarrassing way as getting killed by Lee Van Cleef. His name was Robert Easton. He has a, he has no lines, but I saw him as part of the uh, diving bell crew on the Navy ship. So. There's like five or six people. It's just, just I just mentioned because I love working actors. I just love to see. Oh, there's a guy who got two days work. That's yeah, awesome. yeah. <laughs> and and probably and would probably be surprised if you said. So what was it like working uh, on the Beast from Twenty Thousand Pounds? And he'd probably go, "Was I in that?" And it reminds me of something Larry <laughs> said about that. Uh, Claude Aikens said when people started asking him questions on the on the convention circuit when that became a thing. And Claude Aiken said, you know, somebody asking you what it was like to do a particular rawhide and uh, episode of rawhide now is like asking you what you had for dinner on a particular Tuesday night in 1963. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. That, that, that has stopped me from going to cons and peppering people with questions because <laughs> I, I don't yeah. want to, I just like, that's kind of, it's like, why, why would you remember that? That was just, you know, you were just a working actor. Yeah, but don't be don't be Justin Long in Galaxy Quest. Don't please don't. Please <laughs> don't. Um, but I also picked this movie because I have a slight personal connection to it. Because when uh, I got the job, I remember I was posting a lot on the, uh, the classic horror film board, which started on AOL and went on to its own place. But the, 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 it's the group that gives out the, um, the Rondo Awards. Oh, yeah. 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 So that that was all sort of happening then. And um, so I mentioned, oh, I'm, I'm going to Alabama to work on this creature feature. And uh, everyone's going, well, listen for the foghorns, my friend. And they're like, what? The oh, oh, right. Right. So I, every time I was there, every time I was working late at night, freezing my ass off, I would, and I would hear a foghorn because we were right by the water. I go, 
dear God, I wish I wish it was a Ritasaurus. I wish it would come in here, <laughs> break up this whole production, and I could go home. Because it was the it was the coldest fucking winter in 53 years in Alabama. Well, and we were out, we were in a swap set and it was below freezing. So <laughs> but uh yeah, so I just so I, I always think about whenever I think of Frankenfish's on, I think of Beast. Not that they're anything alike. Um but yeah, but there's that there's that little connection. There's a foghorn and it it might be a retosaurus. I mean, it's possible. You know, who knows? You never know. Yeah. I mean, you're in the middle of you're always, in the middle of always wonder. In the middle of some freezing lake in Alabama, in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, writing the script and thinking about Ray Bradbury. There are worse things to do. There are worse um, things, yeah. Actually, it's 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 funny because the way the monster was realized, not it's not at all like the monster from the story, but in the story, there is this sense, not of menace it's so much. More like of a sea serpent in the story. Right. Don't you just see the, like the silhouette of the head? Yeah. I, I don't believe you really see any more than just the head on a long neck. No, it's not. It's 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 questionable whether it's even supposed to be a dinosaur, but it's it has this sort of sense of loss and longing. And mm. oh yeah, the, the, totally. And and yeah, the, the sense of longing felt by the monster, lost in time, desperate to connect with another of its own kind falling in love with a foghorn. I mean, that's mm -hmm. pure Bradbury. And it gave the monster a tragic yet sympathetic drive, which which met the King Kong test. And it, it, it when I think about that, it's like it's it their their sensibilities were similar in, in a sense that it, it it's small wonder that Ray Bradbury and, and Ray Harryhausen were such close friends their whole life. Mm. Yeah. They, they, right. they kind they of were, both understood a story on that level. They understood yeah, yeah, they, they understood there's a uh, there's a fairy tale quality to both of their works, but mature, grown up, you know, fairy tale fairy tales that have been through some shit. Um, <clears throat> but it, it does it, it's an interesting movie because you don't see the monster right away, uh, but it doesn't cheat you like a lot of a lot of them do. Um, you do see glimpses of it early on, and uh, by by the first ten minutes, so so they they play fairly. Um, they play fairly fair with the audience. It's it, yeah. the thing that always gets me about it is it opens in the Arctic and it's, we're seeing the men of operation experiment. <laughs> That's the code name for this project, which we're told is vital to national security. So you'd think they'd give it a better moniker than operation experiment. Well, we're Which's doing an the worst experiment. Yeah. 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 That's, so, that's, that's, but we'll just call it mission mission. I mean, it's yeah, exactly. It's it's the most obvious. Mission I think it's the most do. obvious code name. It's like, uh, so so we're going to sneak this Trojan horse in, and uh, then we'll that'll be great. What are we calling it? We're calling it Operation Trojan Horse. Great, they'll never figure that out. <laughs> Perfect. You uh, named it so cleverly. We're not in Greece, are we? Because they're going to see this coming. Yeah. Uh, two things I, I want to add to this movie. First of all, um, uh, Godzilla. I think deserves to be in the poetic monster category. Oh, definitely. And one, Godzilla just the first one, just the first one, which mm -hmm. did come out oh, one yeah. year after this, but it's really kind of a swamp thing, man thing scenario where they were kind of just both in production at the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's really fair to say that anybody copied or inspired the other um, per se. And obviously Godzilla's tragedy is very different. It's a it's a big finger wag against the evils of mankind delving too deeply. Um, 
we're we're the dwarves of Moria, and we delve too deep, and now we got a fucking ball run. That's the problem. That's really yeah. Cool. It's it's interesting because we're we're the bad we're the the implied bad guys in Godzilla. Oh yeah, and absolutely. And in this movie, it opens up with they're they're setting off a bomb in the Arctic, like that's a good thing, and uh, these are our heroes. But at least they had the the decency to fuck it all up. So <laughs> so we don't have to cheer them irradiating. I think the, I think uh, Lee Van Cleef should have shot those guys. I mean, it would have solved it would have saved everybody a whole lot of trouble. But I I I want to say something quickly about the um the hero of this movie because I, I think he was probably a compromise, but he worked out pretty well for a lot of reasons I don't think they were expecting. Uh, the the hero's name is Tom Nesbitt, but he's played by a Swiss actor named uh, Paul Hubschmid, who is... You're uh, making I, shit up. No, no. Paul Hubschmid, <laughs> he's credited in the film as Paul Christian, but then he opens his mouth, and it's like when you see Bella Lugosi right. in uh, The Vampire Bat playing a character called Paul Carruthers. He's going... <laughs> Really? Right. Um, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. So, but, and the first time I saw him, first time I saw the movie, uh, I think I, I saw it. I saw it on a double bill with uh, the giant claw. Oh, nice. Which yeah was uh, <clears throat> which should have been which was supposed to be a Harryhausen joint, and but they couldn't been. afford him. Yeah, yep. they couldn't afford him. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it should have been. I think there's a whole conversation there. Yeah, we but, should, we uh, could have that conversation. But but so Hoopschmidt is he he's not a stiff. He's a decent actor, mm-hmm. but he just was so far from you know the the white shirt wearing order barking uh, muscular scientist that I was used to from 50s creature features that the first time I just didn't warm up to him. I thought, well, who is this guy? Why did they cut? But when I rewatched it later, um, he's doing some interesting things that an, an American actor couldn't get away with. First of all, he's he's kind of soft. He he lets himself be cowed by people. Um, when, when he gets criticism, he t- kind of takes it to heart. Uh, he's worried about his reputation. He's he's you know persistent, but he's also kind of self doubting, and mm-hmm. he winds up you know getting called an idiot and and uh, put in a hospital bed and uh, treated basically as a weakling for the first fifteen minutes of it, which no American actor would be enthusiastic about doing. That's just they yeah. do not like to see it's just demoralizing. You're just yeah. making me feel puny. Mm-hmm. But this guy is playing it like yeah, I'm a human being subject to forces beyond my control and greater than myself. So. I'm going to look scared. And, uh, you know, he actually gives a pretty good performance. He's fairly natural once you get past the fact that he's got an accent that unfortunately reminds me of Christopher Lambert. And that ruins everything. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? What's wrong with Christopher Lambert? Uh, Once you get past that. But it also also sets up the template for somebody. Like, for instance, you've got the older scientist... And mm-hmm. and the you know the the young female love interest slash uh, um, assistant, which basically they just copy pasted for them because the same thing. Says Cecil Kellaway, we get Edmund Gwen. He's basically mm-hmm. playing the same character. He's an entomologist instead of a paleontologist, but it's it's very similar. So this this movie w- was such an enormous hit that it really set the it it set the template for a ton of movies that followed afterwards. And 
even though they were all, you know, increasingly cheap. I think one thing this movie did that was smart that a lot of the movies that followed did not do was it is, shot uh, is not hire John Agar. Is not hire John. <laughs> yes. Well, that's true. That's what this. That's what this film did. That all the other films did not do was not hire John Agar. It, this film did not make that one crucial and fatal mistake. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the one mistake you cannot come back from. You're not going to recover. <laughs> In fact, I would postulate that being killed in a movie by John Agar might be even worse than being killed by Lee Van Cleef, I would say. Oh, ow, oh, please. Getting killed by John Agar? That I would never live that down. Well, I would You'd be dead. I'd go That would be a mercy. Because I can excuse a lot of things and I've forgiven myself for a lot of stuff. But that's one thing I just know. Getting you get killed, killed by, by John, Agar. John Agar? You suck now, so bad then. Now getting killed by John Saxon in the 70s. Now that's sexy. I could, I could, I could totally live with that. Okay, John, John Saxon. John Saxon in the seventies. Okay, like, like, um, Enter the Dragon, John Saxon. Yes, yes, Enter the okay. Dragon, John Saxon. Yeah. Okay. He's he's like the only man that could could pull off a comb over that bad, and still be cool. I mean, he he. You can't say he didn't commit to it. No, I, I mean would, he committed I to that never... comb over. He and he committed to it early. I mean, he kept yes. that comb over going. It may be the record breaking comb over. I don't know. It just, it was on screen from about 1968 to about. I mean, uh, through the 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, even, even, in, even into the, the 2000s. So uh, they were still using footage of go. stuff that they'd shot from him. But, um, um, nah, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So, the, so the, they shot a lot of the New York stuff in New York. Oh yeah, which which they didn't even do with Kong. I mean, New York Kong's New York is you know Universal, the Universal Studio backlot, mm -hmm. backlot. Yeah. So it was, it made the Redosaurus. You think, oh, it might make it look more fake. No, made it look made it look perfectly real, realistic. But again, black and white movies have an advantage when they're combining their their elements. Stuff just it looks it just it's easier to swallow. Than when you you're trying to make like what color would a dinosaur be? Then you got to well, figure I mean, that that's out. That's really true. That's really true. Um, that's a really good point. Yeah, you, that just sort of takes that whole element out of it. Question out of it. And yeah. uh, <clears throat> just like uh, you know, watching the monsters, I remember always hearing you'd hear characters say, uh, "Oh, I saw this giant green guy." Yeah, they would always describe Herman as being green. And I remember like watching you know reruns on Nick at Night and. It was like, oh my god, he's supposed to be green? Didn't even occur to me. You're just like not even thinking about that whole aspect of it. Right. Yeah, I don't think I knew that until either Monsters Go Home, which I think was in color. Yeah. Or yep. Uh oh, I think I no, I think uh I saw I saw pictures from uh behind the scenes shots of Monsters Go Home in I think it was in famous monsters of Filmland. Like oh he's green? Yeah, oh. I I remember there being an episode or two where people who had seen him and were afraid of him were describing him, right? And they said that, and I thought that was just so neat as a kid. But I think that uh, something you know, bring this back to to Harryhausen. I think that the triumph of, I mean, the the technical triumphs of this movie on for Harryhausen are like the cinematography. Like he turned. He turned like this. Okay, it let's let's remember that any movie, you know, you're breaking down 
all these aspects of of the, the film right so back me up scott so you're gonna have a, a light lighting crew and a, a director of photography just to make sure the shots look good and everything's lit right and like <clears throat> all these different people all those people are just ray harryhausen he's the animator but he's also lighting he's also you know capturing like he's the everybody essentially for the creature and it has to match whatever is on the actual in the footage because they filmed the footage first and he's right. progressing the footage one frame at a time as he's animating his thing one frame at a time so there are some shots in that movie that are truly spectacularly gorgeous i mean okay the shot where they do the wink to the original story the lighthouse where it is very brief but it's just basically when you know, Retosaurus is going from the Arctic and he's making his way across the ocean. And there's a, he does a quick stop off and destroys a lighthouse. And that whole sequence is shot in silhouette. And it's like mind numbingly beautiful. It is just so incredibly well shot. You know, this is not something that like even King Kong, like any animation up to that point, and it's certainly any stop motion. Like you're not you're not lighting it. You're not thinking about shots in the way that Harryhausen ended up thinking about shots. He would and later in his career, this is when he's still like working out for to hire. But when he started working with Schneer and they started to make their own movies and their own uh, like the Sinbads and all that stuff, that that was like a hundred percent them. So even even it comes from beneath the sea. It's like. They they could do whatever they wanted to do on that. There was no studio interference. They just literally made the thing and then they dumped it in the the lap of whatever studio. And they're like, here's a thing. And they're like, okay, we'll put it out. And that's supposedly the way it worked for them. And um, it's like they could even progress that. Like, let's come up with ideas, you know, based on how to make the animation, how to make the puppet more impressive you know a really good a really good example of that is basically everything with talos in clash in uh jason the argonauts right. you know all the shots that made him look large i mean every, they planned all those out and then they filmed the live action based on the way that ray wanted to have his puppet so he didn't have that freedom with beast beast he's like kind of filling it in but still there are shots that are just crazy and impressive and the lighthouse shot is one of them when he's first appearing onto the street and you're seeing all the people running in the foreground and they're like running towards the camera and all the cars are getting messed up i mean it it, it looks 100 real it's really just so impressive and i think that the technical wizardry of this man was so like so many fold like he's good at so many things, incredible at so many people's jobs. Uh, and it was just like him um, by himself for nine months or a year and a half or whatever, filling in the what? gaps. I mean, you, you, you mentioned two things that really struck me the last time I saw it. Um, for instance, the, the, the lighthouse scene is iconic. I, I mean, you know, that's, that's the, Basically, that that's the uh, set the piece whole, in the story. Yeah, it's like the whole but story. But they they don't make a meal out of it, but they do give you your money's worth, and it's in silhouette for the most part. So it looks a little bit like um, the the flat black uh, scorpions in the black scorpion, where they didn't completely finish um, 
uh, they didn't finish all okay. the effects. Okay. So this this one, uh, the silhouette here though has has a dimension because when he first approaches the the uh, lighthouse, the light's still burning. So you see the the top of the monster, and then he puts the light out. Then he goes. Then it goes into um, silhouette. So it's he's not cheating. He's not he's not making it easy on himself at all. Um, as I think he said in a, in a uh, I read it when he was talking about um, the process. Those sets get so hot. Those armatures get so hot because the lights are on for hours and hours and hours. Oh, just and you have to have the lights yeah. on so high. Um, but. In, in the scene you mentioned where the Redosaurus is first moving through downtown New York and you see people running and then you cut to uh, shots, uh, scenes shot in New York of the Redosaurus coming down the street and the light sourcing is perfect. The way mm. the monster interrupts the light as it hits the, that was hitting the building and the way the shadows play across it. It's, it's phenomenal that he was thinking about all that stuff. That's what makes it feel like it has weight and really exists in that place that you know it has no place being. Mm -hmm. So he was yeah. he was so far ahead of most of the people for that same yeah. reason because he was a he was his own uh director of photography. He was his own best boy. You know, he was he he built the model. He was just uh jack of all trades and master mm -hmm. of all. So and he was the art department too. He was like mm -hmm. uh he would do all of the sketches and do all the storyboards. And if you look back and you find some of his sketches that he did like i mean they are unbelievably gorgeous too they are just the technical skill and every bit of everything he did is so impressive so um yeah his his pencil sketches that he did are just incredible um, very cool I, I i personally think wild beast is uh not my tip top favorite um of his uh it's it's one of my favorites and uh, it is, it is, you know, I do have a poster of it in the background and it is, uh, I do have the the figure as well that put out by star ace a couple of years ago. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, I do, I do think that it sort of, every time I see it, I, I almost want to say it's like his best looking movie. And I know that's kind of ridiculous because it's, it is just black and white, but there's something about the quality of the picture and the, the beast itself. I know like my favorite, even as a kid were the movies like the Sinbads and Jason and clash where there's like a wealth of different creatures. This just has the one, uh, but I don't know. He like concentrated on it and he, and he, he did such an incredible job with the, with the sculpt and different things. I, I, I don't know. There's, I, there are shots in this movie that I think are, are more cinematic and, and, better looking than even the color films well and i have the a theory about that actually. oh oh um, well i i mean the, the director the director was was fine uh eugene Lurie. he he also went on to direct um gorgo if that's your cup of tea um <laughs> but he's he's not great with the actors um i mean they're fine it's just the the human story is kind of you know, it's dull as it usually is in these things. I was thinking, mm -hmm. you know, you, fewer fewer actors, you know, looking to get busy with each other and maybe more monsters. That'd be great. Like, if, But <laughs> it, that would come later. But I think the reason this movie looks so astonishingly good, especially compared to stuff that came later, was it's almost a proof of concept. It's like, look what we can do. Look what we can convince people is real. Mm. And kids went to that movie and they 
They believed in that monster and they wanted to see more. Now, fears later, when we're, when you think, okay, the technology is pretty well known. They should, everyone should be um, doing a great job of this. See, a few years later, once they proved that the concept was possible, then the producer said, okay, now how do we make it cheaper? How do we do right. the same thing, but make it this much cheaper? And that's why you get the sextopus in, uh, mm. in it came from beneath the sea. But from then on, after this was kind of like the high watermark, and they said, oh, this is great. Now let's make it cheap. Hmm. It's the same reason why we have craft singles with no actual food in it now. Exactly. Same, same exact thing. Just remove the cheese 1% over each year. <laughs> and then just eat the plastic it. cellophane wrapping. In. It's the right. <laughs> That's where we're getting to. They're, getting, they're getting warming us up. Right. Um, awesome pick, Scott. Thank you so much for that. Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Definitely. Uh, if people haven't seen it, it did come out one year before Godzilla. And it is a poetic monster movie in the same vein. Just a gorgeous, gorgeous film. And uh, I'm really happy that you picked it. So I didn't have to. It freed me up because I would have had to pick <laughs> these. I mean, it is um, right behind you. People would have been wondering. It, it, it's true. <laughs> um, so, Nintendo, um, yes. what, what is your pick, sir? My pick would have to be 1963's Jason and the Argonauts. Yes. Uh, my, my first time watching this movie, I watched it last night. Um, it was an okay movie. Mm -hmm. I was mostly interested in obviously, you know, the animations of the monsters and everything. But right. and that whole... is just fair. That yeah. is just like... yeah. I mean, because you know, like if I had seen this movie back in the day, I probably would not have given two shits about it because you no, know, that was just how how I was back then. But now. You know, watching these older movies with these kind of effects, you like mm -hmm. really appreciate what they go through to make these movies look really good. Because nowadays everything's a CGI, so I think like super easy. Um, but the whole plot of the movie is Jason goes on a quest to find the Golden Fleece so he can take back his kingdom that was taken from I'm gonna get his name wrong, uh, Peleus. Sure. I think that's I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, oh, so, Peleus? Peleus, thank you. Yes, that's that's correct. Um, so he goes to find the Golden Fleece. You know, he gets help from Hera. And uh, so he finds the, the, the perfect crew. And uh, so one of, the, one of the crew members is actually Hercules, and uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but unfortunately, he's not in for, for uh, very long. But... Um, yeah, so he get he does eventually get the golden fleece, but they don't show him like retaking his kingdom. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, come on, it's obvious. <laughs> we are like the slum gullion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're one fourth Spoiler. slum gullion right now. Yes, yes, and one quarter cleansing cream. Um. So, so the movie was just okay. Like, I mean, whatever it is okay. What it is. I mean, it's definitely the product product of its time, and I'm mm -hmm. not saying you know it. It was it's not a bad movie or anything. It was just mm -hmm. it was okay, but um, I just want to like I really want to talk about like the the monsters that are in this yes. movie. Um, Talos, which is like one of the first monsters you see, and this thing is huge, so enormous. It's just a statue, 
it's just kind of like kneeling and like you can tell it's like it's guarding something and uh in uh one of the scenes you see hercules and uh uh one, let's call one him bob character. we'll call him we'll call him john we'll call him john 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 yeah that's that's greek right oh Speaking his of, his friend hercules friend yes uh hylas hylas thank you um so <laughs> him and hylas go uh into this doorway and they find like the the god's treasure and hercules wanted to take this spear he thinks it's a spear but the other guy's like oh no that's a that's a, a threading pin the thing is looked like a threading pin it was really huge i had like the hole at the end and everything and i and uh it's like well it'll make a good weapon like if the gods can just keep all this stuff here, why not just they're not gonna notice this thing is missing? So so he takes the, the threading pin and they're about to leave and the door closes and Hercules no, he just uses all this strength and just pushes the door right open and uh they they leave and then when, when they come out you see Talos like he slowly like turns his head. Oh and that's that, that shot. That, that shot right there is like a holy shit <laughs> yes like what the fuck and um and i love and the, the sound metal, the of the metal the, yeah yeah oh, yes. God. yes very 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 cool yep. yeah. um and th- just the way how he stands up and gets off the 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 ledge or whatever and he's just like just looking down at hercules and the other guy and starts chasing after them and they uh, fucked around. Now they go find <laughs> out. <laughs> Actually, can I, can I can I mention something here? Because you reminded yeah, me yeah. of uh, something. I want. Um, the the plinth that Talos is on that he gets down off of is kind of a the the way they use the terrain and the things they put in the terrain to to create a sense of scale is something that else that um, that Harryhausen had an amazing knack at, which even like CG artists still struggle with now, try to make yeah. things look like they really have, have scale and weight. And that's something that Talos did. And I noticed even in Beast, the first few minutes, you see three quick shots of, of the monster before we get out of, before we get back to civilization. And the first one, you just see it through like a gap in the snow. You have no idea how big it is. The next one, you see it like, near a hill that you saw a few minutes ago and you kind of remember how big that was compared to the guy, you go, Oh, that's pretty big. Last one. You see, I, they, he completely briefly, it's just a flash, but he establishes that this thing is fucking huge by, yeah. by comparison to, to the terrain. And the, he's, he always, when he wanted something massive, he always went out of his way to create that sense of awe in, in the audience member. I remember whenever I'd see one of his films in a movie theater, because the, the our local revival house used to show his stuff all the time, and you see it on the big screen. Um, it's like Ray Ray Bradbury once said, and he was trying that King Kong was his favorite movie. I think that's what he and Harryhausen bonded over first, and he would always tell any friend of his, "Hey, see see King Kong." So a friend saw it on TV, and he says, "Yeah, it was fine. It wasn't that great," and. Um, and uh, Bradbury says, "No, no, you have to see Kong on the screen where he's forty feet tall. There's nothing on TV." So a guy waited until it came to a local theater and said, "Okay, yeah, you're right. Sometimes some movies are still meant to be seen in a theater. I, I will die oh, yeah. on that hill." Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so Talos is like freaking awesome. He is so cool. 
And then uh, later on, uh, Jason and his crew, they go to seek out uh, Phineas. I think I'm saying his name wrong. Um, so he's supposed <clears throat> to uh, help Jason uh, find where the Golden Fleece is or whatever. And uh, But what you see is, you see Phineas, you know, he's like, he's trying to eat. He's, he's outside. Is the, he's is the blind eat. guy? The blind guy, yeah. And then, and then you see like these two harpies, the harpies scene okay so they're there's this oh. flying around and they're, they're trying they're trying to grab him trying to like you know ruin his day which i think they succeeded <laughs> um and uh yeah so i mean they were i want i really wanted to like them i really wanted to like them but like what scott was saying earlier it's like it should have been just people you know it's just mm -hmm. you know it's just yeah the harpies aren't my favorite the, yeah. the wings are a bit stiff and the, the faces are clearly not the best sculpt. And so yeah. he shoots it from farther away. So you can't ever get close. He did that a lot. There are certain creatures that I really wish that he would do a close up, And yeah. I think that he didn't specifically because there was a limitation to how, how good it looked up close or what they would do is they would do a close up of an actor. So they would do that. They did that in Clash of the Titans with Calibos. They did that uh, in the seventh voyage of Sinbad, which is the first Sinbad uh, with the, the lady who turns into the four-armed snake lady. Um, they only get up close once, and it's it's the actress in blue makeup or in green makeup. And uh, she, you know, the puppet itself, it's like, yep, no, best let's keep it an arm's length. We don't right. need to get any closer because it's going to look. It's gonna that may be something he actually learned from Willis O'Brien because I, I remember he, he was not big on, on creature uh, close-ups. Hmm. And his last film, The Black Scorpion, um, I can't remember if he died or it was just taken away from him. But the producers inserted uh, some very ill-considered close-ups of the monsters that just blew out your your any attempt at at suspending your disbelief uh, so yeah, i've never it, seen that it was movie. Impossible. oh oh it's um it's a very fun film it's it, it has some good effects the stuff that they didn't mess with um mm. but it's it's typical it's got mara corday who was in who was also in the, the giant claw it's got uh, richard denning who was in the oh yeah was, and uh, went on, went on to become sure. the governor of uh, Hawaii in Hawaii Five O. Um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty good one, and it's also uh, if you want to see it kind of with a with a buffering agent, uh, it's it's they did it in the first season at Mystery Science Theater. So okay, you can watch so it. I'm picturing I'm, I'm picturing a scorpion with like human eyes. No, it's not. It's not it's not, but they're not that far from googly eyes. They're not that bad. They're they're they're, they're not good. They're on they're on stalks. It's like it's like oh, and they 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 drool. The scorpions drool no. constantly, which <laughs> like be, because they have teeth or mandibles. Do they have mouth parts? Oh, they've got teeth. They've got teeth. They've got teeth. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> and 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 a and a ton of saliva, excess saliva. They want to share. <laughs> All right, Joe. So we had the harpies. Yep. Um, so what was next? The next is the Hydra, which is definitely the highlights of the movie for me. Um, th this thing is just so badass. So the Hydra is mm -hmm. guarding the Golden Fleece, and Jason, of course, is fighting the Hydra. 
And uh, the fight scene was, you can tell it was, you know, it was very 60s. But, you know, for the time, you know, it was, it's mm-hmm. neat to see. Um, <clears throat> so the Hydra does, itself is so The Hydra cool. is amazing. I mean, so I, I, I want to so say cool. that. Yeah, I want to say that the Hydra itself is kind of my number one favorite um, creature yeah. because it, like, period. Um, because it's it's just it, it's so impressive, it's so unbelievable. All the all the different heads. I don't know if it had like six heads or something, and they're all doing yeah. different things and and yeah. and snapping and it, and also the the heads themselves looked really neat. They ha- they have like little yeah. beaks. Yeah, the and, beaks uh, were such a nice touch on those. Yeah, made it look really singular. Yeah, it's kind of more like a, what I would expect, like a griffin's face to look like, kind right. of right. Yeah, or like I guess I mean they. Yeah. I guess if you fast forward a lot to like Harry Potter when they in the films when they would do uh, Buckbeak, like he kind of had that like really like pointed down, you know, raptor, yeah, like a raptor. Beak. Yeah, yeah it looks it looks snake, excellent so on like, the Hydra. It's interesting that they even came up with that, but or he 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 came up with that design choice. But yeah, really yeah. cool. I I I sort of feel like the the Hydra is maybe my favorite overall hairy housing creature yeah really cool um and then after that you have the skeleton army Mm. which were created by hydra's teeth it's called children of the hydra's teeth and um i kind of wish i mean it makes sense no because no it's hydra's teeth the skeleton army whatever but i kind of wish no he fought a skeleton army first i mean like doesn't have to be hydra's teeth it's coming just just been like a skeleton army or whatever right but that's how they finish off the movie, mm-hmm. and um, and the way how they emerge from the ground was was really really cool. I, I really like that, and um, so you see Jason and two of his uh, his guys, they're just fighting off the the skeleton army. And spoiler alert: two of them die, and Jason survives. No, because he's the namesake of the movie. Um, yeah, I mean they're really cool. I mean the fight scene was fairly long yeah long um, so complicated like very, yeah oh yeah it was really it was well done very oh. well done like the, the whole so fight sequence was just really really cool really impressive hmm. and uh yeah just really cool i think that 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 sequence tends to be like the one that people seem to mention the most, maybe that that one, and maybe Medusa from Clash of the Titans, of just his overall just sequences, just like a, a scene. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I I think it's probably technically his his most impressive uh, because of yeah. all he had to do. And yeah. I think it's it's what's really cool is, um, you know, some something to be said that you're like, okay, well, you know, whatever. It, it's it's an amazing art form. He did so many things so well. But is it is it is it perfect? Is, I mean, no. We can we can tell it's we, through yeah. our eyes today. We can see that it's a model. We can see the herky right. jerky sort of a movement that that became his his style, whatever. But um, something that you could say is like sometimes stuff seemed to move a little bit slow, and for things that are big, that worked like Tal- Talos or even the Cyclops and seven voyage of Sinbad or anything that's like, you know, decent size. It's like, okay, yeah, it sort of is lending weight and scale. Um, right. But sometimes if it's a smaller thing, um, 
it's sort of like kind of looks like they're moving a little bit too slow. This sequence is the one that I feel like throws up two middle fingers at that, at anybody who said your stuff moves too slow, because at first they get up and they march really slow and it's yeah. very yeah. one step and then another step and they're marching and they're all in line. They're in this like phalanx formation. Yeah. And they're just marching really, really, really plottingly. And then suddenly they all scream. Yeah, they scream and they run after explode them. into yeah. like yeah. fast motion. And they are just suddenly they are just running zombies. They are just so fast. And it really is freaking impressive how how not slow they move they are very hey. energetic because right. that's i think the the thing that happens unfortunately when you know the dinosaurs when they move a little bit too slow or whatever it, you lose a little bit of the kinetic action and if especially if they're interacting with a person if they're in a, two dinosaurs it doesn't matter but um but yeah i think that this sequence sort of is uh his best fast motion yes um yeah ever um i think but i i and I do think that his stuff almost lends itself to being a little bit more slow, a little bit more careful with the movements of yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, but but that scene, it's like, no, it proved he could do it. I think that was the uh, that was the like I like I want to I want to compare it to Megadeth. Like that was the rust in peace. That was like them just like oh, yeah, jerking yeah. off for an entire album, going nobody nobody's going to be able to play as good as this. We're going to make this the most complicated nonsense ever, and. That's what they did. That was like, this is his rust yeah. in peace. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I mean, it was really impressive because they weren't just fighting one skeleton at a time. Right. It's like two or three at the same right. time. Yep. And just the way how they pulled it off was just amazing. Mm -hmm. Right, because he would have to film. The, uh, the actors would have to figure out the choreography with actual people. And then they would have to memorize the fight so much that you could remove the people and they would be filmed fighting nothing. So every time, and they did the same exact thing for um, seventh void of Sinbad at the end, he fights one skeleton um, and it's the same thing. So like, you know, he would, if you're, if your swords are going to clash, then the actor had to pretend like it just bounced off another sword or bounced off a shield, or, or yeah. that he got hit, or whatever. Everything's planned out so that Ray knows what he's going to do, and he has the other footage with the actual people that he's using as reference and everything, but this isn't just one Sinbad and one skeleton. It's like a group of people and a group of skeletons. It really just truly insane. It's mind-blowing, yeah. It really is really impressive. I mean, I'm very impressed by the actors, I gotta say. I mean, even though, even the, the quality of actors, I mean, we're talking about, like, Todd Armstrong. So, not a great actor, but they really did sell those those fights. Um, because nowadays, you would have the actors facing off against stuntmen in green suits. Mm -hmm. um, they, would, they would fight. They would actually get the, the swords would clash. But they had to do it yeah, in the air, like a kid pretending. Yeah, just your sword's bouncing back yeah. as it's yeah. just in, in a precise. Like, yeah, can't go too right. far. Right, but you have to make yeah. it look like you really like you were swinging, like you committed yep. to that swing. You're not just like, yes, eh. yeah, yeah. Brilliant, really, really cool. yeah. 
it really is endlessly impressive and uh and yeah i mean i i do sort of know what you you you're saying though joe like i always kind of felt the same way like i wish that the the hydra was the final big bad at the end not the skeletons right. i prefer the that, like that feels to me more like the last boss um but yeah yeah you know you're right they they made it the children of the hydra's teeth but did they need to do that Right. Um, I think the idea is that you know you had to defeat the the wizard at the end, right? Like who who's who's up above the the evil? I don't even I I didn't rewatch this for for this episode. Uh, I saw it last year, but it's been a little while for me. Uh, oh, is that the uh, is like the, the is it Torn Thatcher? I can't remember. Well, no, he's in he's in Seventh Voyage. Right? Is he he's in this in too? Voyage. I'm uh, that's what I'm trying to remember. I thought he was in two, but I could be wrong who was the yeah so nancy kovac was the uh love interest and who was the bad guy damn uh i all i remember is honor blackman was hera i think yeah which i thought was cool i can't pronounce the the guy's name or the the, the character's name but it's a e e t e s I think that's the oh that's oh the oh King, King Aetes King Aetes yes, yes. oh right right yes. right yeah that was uh, Jack Willem I think okay yeah yeah but and, it's like that was the final confrontation with him and you couldn't have really done that with the Hydra unless I guess he's up on a ledge or something this was cool because he like uh, actually threw the teeth into the ground and caused the skeleton so it's like I get it but. Well, I Personally, always thought that yeah. that was like, oh, yeah, we, yeah. oh, we beat the Hydra, we, we won, we won. And then, he, then, he, then he pulls over. this, Please. and he pulls yeah, this totally unfair good. trick out. Us, but I here's something I would like to ask you guys: Do you think yeah. is this um, not the partner? <laughs> <laughs> do you think video games and the way they are constructed have influenced our expectations for movies? Like, for instance, you said. The, the the Hydra would have made a better big boss. I mean, right, that concept didn't really exist right. back then. And right. they somebody would have thought, oh, so the Hydra's the, the Hydra was was suspense and misdirection. And then the payoff is the skeleton army. So you can see how they could say, okay, well, now one monster, he beats it, you think that's it, and then oh, now there's all these monsters. I can see how they but but we we think no, no, the big monsters that should be the big boss, right? <laughs> right. Right, the, the other the, the skeleton should be the minions that yeah. you clear out to get to the the big boss. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, our, it's brain, just, our brains have been fried by video. It's games. it's literally just <laughs> the way we're thinking, and you're right. I mean, it's totally valid. And you know, if it was a if it wasn't scripted, why would the final biggest thing be last anyway? Right. <clears throat> but yeah, it does feel like to me like a group of enemies after a final boss. So, <laughs> <laughs> you yes. guys here for sloppy seconds? Yep. What? Right. <laughs> I already beat the hard guy. You guys are just jokes. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, you're late. All right. <laughs> All right. Any other uh, any other thoughts on Jason and the Argonauts before we do the octoponder thing? No, I'm good. All right. Thanks, Joe. No. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the the monster stuff because really, I love the monster stuff. I mean, I it's like it's it's really fair. Uh, not every Harryhausen movie is like necessarily well acted or anything like that like you're there yeah. for the monsters you're there for the fun it's of like, it. it's like, it's and, like watching uh, godzilla it's like watching godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah. Right. <laughs> enough it, of the story right 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it is what it is. But yeah, his, his stuff is always always fun, uh, no matter what. And I think that's that's what it is about him because there aren't a lot of other like celebrity special effects people that people would go to see just because they did it. I think that today we look back on people like Stan Winston and Rick Baker and uh, and stuff like that. But I don't think at the time. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think at the time people were really thinking in terms of that. But uh, a lot of people in these documentaries that were watching uh, these Harryhausen movies as kids, they would say they would they would actually they were paying attention and they would look for his name on the. Oh, it's a monster movie. Is that because it's a, such a unique name? Hair Ray Harryhausen. Like that's such a unique right. name. And they were paying. Well, attention. We were my friend. Like, my friend and I were huge fans in 81 we were very excited by clash of the titans we we were out of our minds with anticipation for that movie and it was all because of ray harryhausen i was hmm. i was able to contain my excitement over the prospect of seeing harry hanlon in a tunic i had no problem with that but harryhausen <laughs> i was going nuts <laughs> and that's how it is um all right guys well uh that that we'll call that the first half um a little bit long but that's okay our second half is going to be a much shorter because we have a quick octoponder for you today we posted not a question on our facebook group but we posted for you guys a poll and uh i'm just going to refresh this page one more time just to get any last minute perhaps votes uh let's see how we did um, what I did this week was have a Harryhausen battle royale with some of his most impressive monsters. And what I did was I eliminated Talos and the Kraken because I thought it would just be completely unfair. And I put uh, only one creature from eat per movie. I didn't want to like have too many from each one. Um, not every movie is represented or anything. There's only six. Um, if it'll, if it, if it will load, I can tell you just load in just a second. We oh, had a wow. runaway, runaway victor. Um, to the pole. oh, let me guess. Is it? <laughs> is it Medusa? Well, let's let's find out, shall we? Okay. So, uh, we have we have six different options here uh still loading uh six different options but there are only five categories so in dead last place with zero votes wah wah is my man trog from the end of sinbad and the eye of the tiger oh trog we barely knew ye, but you got no votes no votes so oh, well. <laughs> oh i thought see I, I i i mistook that one for the for the joan crawford trog and i just couldn't oh different one different one um, and then we have in a three-way tie, we have in fourth place, we have the Redosaurus from Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Guanji from the Valley of Guanji, and the Emir from 20, 20 Million Miles to Earth, which is a movie we've barely talked about tonight, but uh, that is another awesome black and white flick. And the Emir is the only monster in the movie, just like Beast, and he's in it a ton. Uh, at various really, stages in development, he's a he's a yeah. little wee Amir, he's a baby Amir, he's a big, and he's he a, gets bigger, he's a toddler, and he's a life cycle, he's a yeah. teenager Amir, and he acts. I out. do wish, I do wish the the instead of just making the same model appear bigger or smaller, I do wish he, there was a baby model yeah. in a. Yeah, me too. 
adolescent and adult. I think that would have been much cooler. But um, plus, oh my god, I want a baby Amir. He's gonna yes. be so adorbs. He'd be totes adorbs. He's cute anyway. He's probably his cutest monster. I mean, he's I mean, kind of looks cute, like a big. Yeah, he, he looks like a big enough. sea otter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does exactly. If he was cute enough as a baby, then you wouldn't have questioned why they brought him back. Well, of course, <laughs> they're not gonna. True. He's a good boy. They're not he's a good boy. Behind. Um. All right. In third place with, uh, no. Uh, so, uh, fifth place, fourth place. So I don't know. Cyclops is next. Uh, he's in fourth place. He uh, he got just two votes. Cyclops from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. I actually thought the Cyclops was going to garner more more votes because he he tends to be a very popular um, one of one of his monsters. The Cyclops people love that freaking guy. He's from the Seventh Voyage. He is in that movie a decent amount. And what's cool about the Cyclops is even after they kill him, another Cyclops shows up who looks slightly different. Uh, so, and they, they do, they throw this one line and they're like, oh, well, there's, there's many more around <laughs> and they're like, oh, 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 maybe that'll come up later. I don't know. Um, is this, for, place, is this foreshadowing or just Patty? I can't tell. <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> so that was, so that was actually third place. I'm just counting badly. So in, in second place with, uh, six big votes, is the Hydra from Jason and the Argonauts. Mm. Um, and of course, number one with a bullet. Uh, she got how many? 20. Uh, no, no. Um, 16 votes is Medusa from Clash of the Titans. And it's funny because like, yeah, I, I get it. She she wins. She has the she has the stone power. So like, a lot. No, yeah, she wins a lot. But, you know, you know, if I had put Calabos in that position, like uh, I, I, I wonder how it would have shaken out at the end. I don't know, but we'll never know. You know, Medusa's been through a lot. She deserved to like get a get a little victory. You know, from time to time. You know. Um. So anyway, that's the battle royale. So I will ask you guys, who did you vote for in this poll, Scott? I voted for. Uh... The Beast of 20,000 Fathoms, because when I logged on, he had zero. And I thought, sad. The dude deserves some love. And uh, I knew, I knew that Medusa was going to win. And uh, I didn't, I just, I did not like Clash of the Titans that much. I, uh, it was very much an 80s film in the worst way that it, 80s could film things. And it's, it's, it's well shot, but it just, it's lifeless to me and it did not give me any of the, the pleasures that I derived from earlier Harryhausen films. It's just, it's just kind of a, it just lays there and says, Hey, isn't this cool? No. no. Well, how about this? Yeah, that's okay. They just, it went from proceeded from one set piece to another. And, uh, gotcha. And, you know, and everyone in it is a stiff. I mean, even the mm. people who are playing the gods don't look like they want to be there. That's true. So, it's like, can somebody, we need to find some hero, some demigod, some miraculous man gifted beyond all other men to get our parents up here to Olympus. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they got Sir Lawrence of Olivia. He, 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 you know, he, he's not going to not look, be bored. He's, he shouldn't be there. He's bored. He's, this is dumb. This yeah, is like, I mean, you know, Orson Welles doing Transformers, the movie. I mean, like he's exactly not happy about it. I mean, yeah. at least when Olivier was in the Betsy. He was he was chewing the scenery. 
at least he was devouring the whole thing, which I, I, I don't know, keep himself awake. I don't know. Or just check. I don't know. But he just uh, wasn't hungry this time, I guess. He was not hungry. He just uh, he, well, had, he had a snack before the movie, and that was a mistake. <laughs> uh what about you guys? 8 bit, who'd you vote for? I voted for Guanchi. Mm, good choice. I like Guanchi. He's he's great. And he's he's uh he's purple in the movie, which is fun. Yeah, and they de-purpled him for the figure, which is sad. I know. I, know. I wanted a purple Guanchi. <laughs> uh yeah, but people come in and go, oh, that's a really that doesn't look that much like Barney. You couldn't get yeah, he's more so much more badass than Barney. Than Barney. Right, <laughs> way better purple dinosaur. He does not love you. More... He does not love you at all. No, no, no but I don't need him to because I love him. It's a one-way street. <laughs> it is interesting though that Guanji fights a Styracosaurus, and uh, the other Barney character was Baby Bop, who kind of is like a Styracosaurus. Yeah, true. Were that. They, were they looking to the Valley of Guanji or when Gwangi they made adaptations. Barney and Friends? I, I don't know. Maybe uh, mm. Nintendo. Who'd you, who'd you vote for? The Hydra. Uh, I also voted for the Hydra. Um, he was he was my pick, but um, yeah, good stuff. Um, so clearly, um, I rolled right into this because it was a weird one. I'm just I'm just being a bad host, but we do got to play some some commercials. So let's do that right now. And uh, there's nothing for you to ponder because uh, we just we just dumped the poll in your lap, and that's just kind of how I did it. So. Um, you guys just hang out for a bit, listen to some cool commercials, and we'll be right back with two more Harryhausen picks for you. Stay tuned. Hey, kids. It's time to check out the Dorkening Podcast Network. With over 30 podcasts that encompass everything from horror to video games to comic books and so much more, you're bound to find the shows for your taste. Whether it be Nerds of Unusual Origin, That Strange Show, Retro Red Octopus, Flash Pages, Throwdown Thursday, The Horror Squad, Still Token with My God, man, I can't read all of these. So just feel free to play and experiment with the Dork Eating Podcast Network. There are over 30 shows chock full of nerdy goodness to sink your ears into. And they're all available on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are broadcast. Are you a fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic books? Then Epic Tales from the Sewers is a podcast for you. We cover the comic books, video games, movies, cartoons, and anything else turtle-related. We talk about the toys, we talk about the cereal, we talk about all the fun things about turtles that we love so much. So give a listen. You can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Check out Epic Tales from the Sewers, part of the Epic Airways podcast network give a listen dudes cowabunga is this podcast for you attention this is the lost skeleton of cadavra and you are listening to rancho notorious no wait no that's retro redoptopus hey are you ready to do some bacon it's about that time where we ask you the audience to octo ponder this all right everybody we are back hope you enjoyed those lovely commercials from our friends and friends and fam on the dorkening uh welcome back aboard we're happy you're here and uh there's like i said nothing to ponder this week but we're gonna just keep on rolling with the fun um so guys we have we have two more movies to present for you um one of them is my movie 
And I'm going to present it now because we are going in order of release. So, full manual release. Yet manual release. You know, you know, sexual release. You know, any sort of release. You know, any any sort of release. Really, any any want grease release. This sure. That was a commercial. Never mind. Um. So, my movie. This this is I'm wondering if this is going to make Scott groan. Although I think that <laughs> I think okay. that Scott, you know, you've you've already said you don't like Clash, so Clash is not my movie. But um, I don't know. I feel like this is the least popular of the Sinbad trilogy. Um, however, I will tell you that it is the most important. Harryhausen movie to me personally because it was the one I saw the most as a kid. So yes, I saw Clash of the Titans first and a million times and I did love it. But one time Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger was oh. on TV and my mom recorded it for me. We saw that it was going to be on and I had never seen the other Sinbad movies. This was only the second Harryhausen movie I ever saw. And I watched that more than Clash of the Titans. I watched Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger a million times. Um, so I love this movie. It, it, to me, it, to me, it absolutely still holds up. Um, <clears throat> I watched it last year for the first time in a long time, but I, I rewatched it the other day. And uh, this, this, this is a fun movie. I really, really enjoy this one. And it is just chock full of really awesome creatures. So Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger, 1977, the last of the three uh, Sinbad films. Each movie has a different actor in the role of Sinbad. Um, here we get Patrick Wayne, the son of John Wayne, as Sinbad, who is... is not really, actually an actor. Yeah, no, no, he's, he's, not, he's not super good. Like, he's good, like, looking, and he has a good smile, but, like, he doesn't really... <laughs> they actually don't give him a lot to do. It's really funny. He doesn't have too many lines and uh, he sort of feels like he's not really the main character as much as the other two Sinbads did. Um, mm -hmm. But then we have um, Jane Seymour as Farah, who is just truly just beyond beautiful. My God, Jane Seymour back in these days, she was stunning, stunningly beautiful. She was great looking in this, and she was beautiful in um, oh the Bond oh that her Bond the movie. Bond film. Yeah, I don't know which Bond film. I know she was in a Bond film. I'm just not it was a the black exploitation one. Okay. Uh, uh, well. Was that Dracula 1972 AD with James Bond? Was that, was that <laughs> Yeah, that must be what I'm thinking of. That, that sounds reasonable. Um, and then we have. Martin By the way, this this movie, this movie, yes, just has I I always delighted in this film because it contains uh, it contains Doctor Who and Chewbacca. Yes, it does. That's true. <laughs> and uh, the previous the previous film, uh, which was Sinbad, the it was the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. It's, it's so the, the the titles are just terrible. Like the seventh voyage <laughs> is the first one. And then the next one was The Golden Voyage. How are you supposed to keep these straight? At least the third one had a better title and The Eye of the Tiger. Like, okay, that's the third one. But yeah, so Tom Baker, who is the Doctor Who with the scarf and the perm, I don't know. He he was uh, the bad guy in the 
in the golden voyage. And so it's interesting. We went from bond villain bond. I mean, no, not bond who to villain to another who, but he's a good guy. This guy's uh, Patrick Trufton, AKA the second doctor who he plays Melanthius. And we also get Margaret Whitting as the evil, witch Zenobia who I looked it up and I was like, man, I remember her being like this old evil, like horrible, ugly witch lady. And now I'm like 44 and I looked at her. I'm like, she's not really that bad looking. <laughs> like, I, I kind of think like, she's like kind of, kind of good looking. Like it's weird. I mean, they make her look evil, but like, I don't know, like I'm kind of digging it. And I looked it up and like, Oh, I wonder how old she was. And I'm like, yeah, she was 44. She's my age. Wow. <laughs> God, oh my God! This is the first time I—I I remember the first time I went to see um, Sunset Boulevard at a theater. Mm -hmm. um, after I, after I had turned fifty, and I was watching it and realizing that uh, Gloria Swanson was my age. Gloria Swanson, who everyone treated like she was Methuselah, in that. Well, oh God, she's she's so old. She was fifty. That's how old she was. <laughs> I mean, Wilford Brimley was in his forties in the thing. I mean, he, yeah. the man lo has looked like he was 67 forever. Um, That's why I do not eat oatmeal. <laughs> it's, it's not worth it. It's not, um, it's not the right thing to do. No. Oh, I will take, I will take the diabetes over looking like <laughs> diabetes. Wilford Brimley. Um, so this was the most expensive of Ray's movies up to this point. <clears throat> Clash of the Titans cost more. This one cost $3.5 million. Um, the Sinbad movies were all big money makers. This one included. Uh, it was... Uh, yeah, so... Oh, Clash Clash actually cost $15 million, So a lot more than this one. Wow, but in 81? Jesus. Yeah, this was the second... Um, the second most expensive Ray Harryhausen movie. And it's 3.5. Jeez. Crazy. Um also, this uh, holds a very wow. funny designation. It's one of the only, if not the only, G-rated movie to have nudity because Jane Seymour does a a topless skinny dipping scene that she was goaded into um, by uh, Charles Schneer, the mm. producer there. And uh, she wasn't happy about it, but um, she did it under the condition that None of the crew would be around, only the camera guy. And uh, she doesn't actually show like frontal or anything like that, but there's her whole back. I uh, get a little side boob, get some, <laughs> some lower and she's just kind of turns and she screams, but like that it's a G rated movie. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. <laughs> like, like, well, what? do you guys remember PG, PG and PG 13 movies in that era? Boobs were not a, not an unusual at all. Now it's like they're they're PG like, thirteen rated movies from back in yeah, the but era. G not G not G no, not G Disney. absolutely not no. PG and, yeah. and PG thirteen yeah yes yeah and you get boobs you got a lot of butts too but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, nowadays it's like did did you nowadays uh, Gen Z doesn't want to see sex in movies so. God it's getting to the point where I can't even go That's see a here. Pixar movie and 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 not see a a mom with a dump truck butt. Like, <laughs> What's the point of even going to see a, a Pixar movie at this point? That's li literally the only reason. Anyway, so um, <laughs> so the plot of this movie, the thing that I, okay, I love so much that this movie breaks from the other ones. 
story-wise as much as it does. The Golden Voyage is really kind of a retread of the seventh voyage with things just changed a little bit here and there down to like the beats with the monsters are all even similar in the final clash with the the weird cyclops centaur fighting the griffin is very reminiscent of the cyclops fighting the dragon and um only it's lazy because the griffin just comes out of absolute nowhere and he's like i don't know the guardian of good or something from that temple i don't know but he just literally comes out of nowhere and it's like okay we're we're doing this it's happening this is happening but in this movie you know it's it's about uh so jane seymour's character her she's the sister of this brother kasim um and kasim is going to be crowned uh caliph the their you know royalty he he's going to be crowned ruler of their kingdom and um well evil witch Zenobia wants her son Rafi to get the job instead. So she enchants Khalif and it is actually withheld from the audience. Exactly what happened. You knew something happened. There's big fire explosion. Jane Seymour screams something terrible. And it is a little while into the movie before it fully reveals that um, he was turned into a baboon. So wait, who's this? The, what character? This is, this is the uh, Prince Kasim. Kasim. Um, okay. Right. Yeah, Kasim. And he's turned into a baboon. And um, it's a Ray Harryhausen baboon. And apparently they did talk about can we just hire a baboon and train the baboon? And uh, and they're like, well, it's a whole union thing. The, the baboon union is really tough and it's not going to work out. So, uh, you know, so they're like, all right, let's just let Ray can do it. Ray can do it anyway. He can make him do all these things. They, they did want him to do some human things with his hands, you know, like raccoons do. Um, you know, they needed him to like play chess and stuff. And, um, and so you, what you get is you get, I think for the first time ever with this movie, you get a Ray Harryhausen creation who is a, a pervasive character in the entire movie. It's not like a sequence, one and done sort of a thing, or like a monster that they fight a couple of times. It's like, no, 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 this is a good guy. And he's actually the MacGuffin of the whole story. They're trying to cure him. And there's a ticking clock because there's there's a twofold ticking clock. First of all, they have to crown him Caliph uh, before seven moons pass. Otherwise, he forfeits the job. And it does go to Evil Witch Zenobia's son, Rafi. And they're they're both evil jerks, so we don't want that to happen. So that's ticking clock number one. But also, the longer he's staying as a baboon, the less human he is becoming. Now, he can't speak, but he starts out and he can write. That's actually how they convince people. Um, and there is this really great line. I think it's the best line that that um, uh, Patrick Wayne has where where they we first are told it's the first time we as the audience learn that yes this baboon that they've been carrying around is actually the prince um and this happens because one of the other sailors like i don't know he like climbs around the side of the ship and like breaks into the captain's cabin which i straight up don't understand why he thought that was a good thing to do and i feel like he should probably be tossed overboard for that i don't know but he does this and he, he breaks in and he sees jane seymour playing chess with the baboon and he freaks the fuck out and he's like oh my god blah blah blah, blah. and he's freaking out and then sinbad runs and he's like what 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 what's wrong what's wrong and he's like oh, i saw that i saw the monkey who's playing chess and 
Patrick Wayne goes, I know he's beaten me twice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, he's really good. It's like good, solid, funny delivery. It's like, well done. But, um, so they have to hurry up, find a cure. But you know, by the time Sinbad has uh, gets there at the beginning of the movie, he's all, they've already tried everything. They've, they've exhausted all the wise men, all the, all the magicians, all the people and uh, the soothsayers. They don't know Jack. And so they really are at their wits end. And uh, so Sinbad's like, Oh, well, I have this hail Mary. There's this, uh, there's this Greek uh, alchemist guy. And uh, he might not be real, but let's find him. So then they, they go out to search for uh, Melanthius and they do that. But um, before, before, Actually, I skipped one sequence that is really it's so funny that I skipped a sequence. This is the sequence I always forget about, even like thinking back to this movie. I feel like this is the sequence that's never, ever talked about in any circles. Like nobody ever talks about this sequence ever. I, I It's just forgotten. It's never celebrated. And it's early in the movie. They fight these three creatures that are apparently just known as the ghouls. It's the ghoul fight but really they could be called anything they don't say any name for them in the in the film but it's when sinbad first arrives at the uh at the palace before he even gets to talk to jane seymour and learn about the baboon and all the stuff um evil witch zenobia uh she poofs up a bunch of ghouls so they they have a fight that's it's very much like a skeleton fight but it's at the beginning it's the first like fight of the whole movie. I think it's the first creature you see. Um, and it's these weird looking, um, they're not skeletons, but they're skeletal. They're very emaciated, uh, brown skinned, like bug headed little horns creatures. And they have big, big, big eyes and, uh, little, little droopy, like bulldog jowls. And, uh, I don't know. One has green eyes. One has black eyes. One has red eyes. And other than that, they're just interchangeable. So I don't know. There's this, pretty decent fight with these ghouls they're kind of cool um but it sort of doesn't have any bearing on the rest of the story and it's so easy to forget this scene but i did want to mention it so and then we get the baboon lots of stuff with the baboon and then so they they end up finding uh melanthius played by doctor who number two and his uh his lovely daughter and they both join the quest uh he can't he doesn't know of any way of of curing Khalif, but uh, I mean of uh, Kasim, but he's like, oh, I I think that there's this ancient civilization, and they might have, <laughs> they might not exist, but we're gonna go and try to find this place and see if maybe there's this long dead civilization that holds the cute. So it really is just like a, a scavenger hunt type movie, but it's really fun because it the pacing with the monsters is really really perfect you never go that long without something interesting to see and they really do work in a lot of stuff with the baboon and as it goes you are getting that ticking clock of him losing his humanity like they really start to work in like he's more aggressive he gets frustrated with stuff uh you know at first he's just playing chess then later he's he's playing chess but he when he loses a piece he gets mad and he like topples the whole board and and just you know fucks off and like you know wants to go back to his cage and he's just mad and so it really is this like constant sense of urgency like we we gotta we gotta go we gotta get there we gotta get there fast um and then so it's definitely worth mentioning evil witch zenobia and her her son rafi were you know as i said both uh 
both dicks. We don't like them. Um, so they are also following Sinbad on this journey in their own ship, and their ship is just very evil looking. I really like it. It's not a big ship. It doesn't have sails. It's just this weird, like it's like a battleship. It's like a battleship, is what it is. Was oh, it that size. big? It was about it's about the size, roughly the size <laughs> of a battleship. And uh, so the first thing that they do is they're setting out on this voyage, as you do, is to make a, a giant golden automaton to do your bidding and row your ship because i mean you're not going to do it your damn self you're an evil witch and uh you know pompous poncy son so um so they 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 craft easily one of the coolest designs i think for any of harryhausen's characters which is the miniton and this is the character as scott said uh who was played in certain shots by peter mayhew who was uh chewbacca later he wasn't chewbacca yet this came up you know just right before star Wars was, was shot, I guess this one uh, was shot. They both came out in 77, but so um, yeah, he's not in too many shots. It really is the wide shots. There's a few shots where they, they are filming the ship from uh, uh, you know, a crane or something like that. And, uh, and you're, you're seeing the Minuton always rowing. He is like what this one, like master um, like lever on a, uh, on the deck and it's controlling like all of the oars as he's, as he's turning it. And, um, and so up close, most of the time, all the Minuton really does is just row. And it's interesting. It's like, man, they, they really could have just used the guy in the suit here too. So first they were like, Oh, maybe we can get a real baboon. And Ray's like, no, 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 I got this. And then, they had a guy they actually made the suit they made the minuton suit and it looked great looked the same and uh he's like no no no, i got this it's really interesting he did truly always make more more work for himself like he really did maybe it was just a paycheck thing but i don't know like it really (laughs) no no that's that was that was more work i mean they he had a limited amount of money to to do his effect so he's got you know he he decided what to spend it on yeah so that's true that was impressive. He he was committed to making stuff look as good as it possibly could. Yeah. And I always wondered if it was a coincidence that he retired in 1981 because it was right after Clash of the Titans, and that was a that was a, the biggest movie he'd ever done. I'm going, mm-hmm. Why didn't he keep going? And I always wondered if he saw the handwriting on the wall because 1981 was because he had brought. I firmly believe he had brought stop motion absolutely as far as it could go right and artistically there was nobody as good as him um but in 81 dragon slayer came out and dragon slayer as i recall was the first um feature film use of um go motion which was the what they what they then called the next evolution in stop motion because in stop motion you'll move your character millimetrically you'll shoot one frame you'll move it slightly more you shoot mm-hmm. one frame but the motion occurs in between the frames that's why you get that kind of jerky you never the motion can never be smooth because you're mm-hmm. never actually seeing the motion go right. motion it's all done with rods so like the the dragon and dragon slayer mm. they would take its it it would walk by they would push the rods which would be matted out later so they would push one foot forward with these rods and then they would take the shot, the one frame, as it was moving. So people are going, oh, this is going to smooth out the motion. It's going to look amazing. And it did. 
but it was limited and it was super expensive. But I wondered if he looked at it and goes, oh, okay. Technologically, things have changed. This is where it's going. I guess I just got lapped by progress. And the thing Perhaps. is, though, he was he was almost right, but it wasn't Go Motion that did it. It was CGI. There was something just over the horizon that was going to make him now and forever obsolete, but it wasn't right. the thing they thought. Well, true. Well, I mean, he was also in his sixties at this point. Maybe, maybe he was just you know ready to retire. But, maybe but I yeah. just, but I was wondering. But before, yeah, that's fair. Before, so I didn't even know about Go Motion. I mean, I do remember the Dragon and Dragon Slayer looking pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I think before CG, you know, really took over. It's worth mentioning too that in in the eighties, like we had the boom of like puppets, where mm -hmm. like the, fr I mean, my God, like to think of like how real the alien looks and the alien queen and you know certain mm -hmm. creatures and you know practical effects. And all puppetry, the thing, and all these different things that became the thing of the '80s, I think for for monsters. Yeah, I mean that that did that that was a totally different thing. And so maybe maybe he did see the coming thing, whatever that was. There's obviously a few options, uh, and maybe his he was just he was just gonna bow out on a on his biggest movie and call it a day. But um, but yeah, I don't know. But I think between Clash and uh, Eye of the Tiger, there really were a ton of creatures. So I just got a, a couple more um, a sequence. Another one I think gets overlooked in Eye of the Tiger is uh, the, they end up in this Arctic location. And um, <clears throat> uh, he went through various ideas of what the creature was they were going to fight. Initially, it was a Yeti. And then they changed it to he wanted to do a woolly mammoth. Uh, both of which I think would have been cool. I think the mammoth, I think the Yeti maybe less so because we have so many humanoid characters in all of his different movies. So I always like it if there's like a different armature that you haven't seen before. But he ended up doing a giant walrus. And uh, honestly, this is one of my favorite sequences in the film. Um, as a kid, it was I think it was my favorite sequence in the film. There's, a, there's a, you know, tons of snow. Like, I don't know how he really did it, but there's like this, you know, layer of blizzard going on so it's very dark it's at night it's uh snowing and i don't know like this walrus looks 100 real to me like i honestly love this walrus and it's 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 a cool sequence too because it just kind of pops out of the ice and just a, and it, it it doesn't attack them they it just kind of pops up and goes what the fuck <laughs> and starts like roaring because that's how it says what the fuck because it's a giant walrus and the other guys are like, oh, we have to kill it. And then so they start like throwing pointed sticks at the poor thing. And then it starts fighting back because, you know, what else are you going to do? And then finally, it, it just says, fuck this. Only it says, Whoa, you know, because it's a giant walrus. And that's how it says, fuck mm -hmm. this. And then it, it turns around and fucking goes back underwater and is gone. It, fu it just fucks off. Like, done. And I love it. They don't kill it. They don't kill it. They don't need to kill it. They just fight this random giant walrus. And I'm like, man, if there was a sequence to cut, it was this one. But I'm so glad they didn't. <laughs> like, I really, really enjoy that one. So because even the ghouls, the ghouls aren't as cool at the beginning. But, you know, Evil Witch Zenobi has got a flex. So we need to know she's right. got like some serious, you know, cred. So but this one, this one feels like totally unnecessary. But part of what makes Sinbad so fun and adventure so fun is that, you know, you're seeing you're seeing different 
scenarios, different ports of call. And uh, this random Arctic place that they just were in for five seconds is just so great and so different than the rest of the movie. Well, I, I can um, almost guarantee you that the producer was looking at the script counting pages going, how long has it been since we've seen a monster? Oh, you're, we're not ready right. for another fight. So let's, let's just right. see one. And it's, it is really well paced. There's also, a, I skipped over, there's a, a sequence with a giant wasp that they fight. And uh, it's, it's, it's fun as well. You know, it's like, there's always something. So then they get to where they're going and uh, it's, it's this place called Hyperborea, which is not the same place that Conan lives. Yeah. It and, sure sounds uh, like. It. <laughs> yeah. That's Hyborea. This is Hyperborea. So it's slightly faster. Um, <laughs> It uh, it has one major creature that they meet, and that is Trog, my man who got zero votes in the poll. Poor Trog. Uh, he's a giant caveman who has a, a unicorn horn stick out of his Yeah, head. what the hell is with that horn? That I don't know means. why they gave him a oh, horn. On. He's so unnecessary. So I think that the model of Trog, if you take all of his like similar characters, like the Cyclops... Um, and uh, Calabos from Clash of the Titans, any of the humanoid creatures like that, I think Trog looks the best. I think his face is incredibly expressive, um, and he is just a really fun character who I I just love. I love Trog. He's a troglodyte. They call him a troglodyte, meaning caveman, um, and they just shorten it, and they, they're like, oh, it's, we'll just call him Trog. Because like the baboon, He's a character who joins the party. Like they get him at this point. He joins the freaking party and he does not fight them. He's just, he's scared at first. And then he just sort of, you know, just stands there and isn't sure what to do. But the baboon can apparently speak troglodyte. So he ooks and eeks and, and, and farts and stuff. And, and trog does it back and, and then they're friends and that's how it works. So, great now we have a, a giant uh helper buddy which is pretty handy if you need giant doors opened and shit so he he's just with them which is fun you never get like good monsters and this movie has two good harryhausen creatures and uh so anyway so then they they go to the the the, the final temple and uh some other stuff happens but but um there ends up being a guardian of the shrine that is the final creature the final the final boss of this is a saber tooth tiger. It starts out and he is encased in just a big hunk of ice to the, and you really like, can't really tell what's in there. Like I remember as a kid, like not at all being able to tell what it was going to be. It's pretty cool. And then anyway, they, they cure the Prince. You make him human again. And then they kill Prince Rafi who wants to be the Caliph. Uh, he's not a Prince. He's just a shithead, but he's dead now. And evil witch Zenobia, she's pissed. So she like turns into steam. Cause that's, I guess the thing she can do. And she like goes and possesses the still encased in ice guardian of the shrine and breaks out. And, and now she's a saber tooth tiger. It's <laughs> apparently another thing she can do. And so they have this really fun fight where it's not the good guys fighting the saber tooth tiger. It's Trog fighting the saber tooth tiger it's a smilodon guys okay there was no saber tooth tigers it's a saber tooth cat okay it's actually a smilodon it's saying you gotta stop saying saber tooth tiger and i'm doing no favors to this argument by saying it as many times as i am 
The only the only person who should be saying saber tooth tiger is Power Ranger. Okay, like nobody else. So anyway, so I think the Flintstones uh, are allowed though. Fluffy, the Was Flintstones fluffy? kind of had the Flintstones. Yeah, they had a. Um, they were there yeah, first. Yeah, I mean, they weren't super accurate, you know, cavemen with dinosaurs and stuff. So, I mean, like, it's, it's, yeah, I, I guess I'm not going to pick apart the Flintstones. They can, <laughs> they can have that. And, and I mean, then there's the Flintstones. Yeah, I mean, then there's the Great Kazoo, which, you know, brings in a whole other thing. I, I don't even know what to do about the Great Kazoo. Yeah, that, um, that despair. Yeah, despair, exactly. Um, hey, Harvey Corman, I don't care. Um, so, okay. So then there's this huge fight with uh trog and the the smilodon and uh it is fun and and the smilodon wins poor trog dies and it's like the saddest thing in any harryhausen movie like it's the it's the swamps of sadness with artex get drowning for no good reason like all over again like it's it's just so sad i mean that would happen later no, so it's this like the ant the ant that defended the kids dying and honey i shrunk the kids and honey i shrunk the kids it's just like that my you know, wife was so mad Oh, she was furious that she that she the movie made her cry about an ant. Oh, she was goddamn ant. And I've seen them. I don't like your kind. Exactly. Um. So anyway, and then the humans have to defeat the the Smilodon and 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 hooray, everybody wins. But yeah, poor Trog, we barely knew ye, but he's a great character, and uh, it's a it's a sad death. I I don't know. I just love this movie so much. It is the closest to my heart. So. I had to pick it, um, and yeah, just a wealth of incredibly great Harryhausen creatures. Second only to uh, Clash of the Titans, in my opinion, as far as like the sheer amount of different cool scenes. Um, but that's all I have to say about that. Um, does anybody else want to say nice. anything about Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger? I've never seen it, so I have nothing to add. Okay. Same. <laughs> also, Evil Witch Zenobia uh, gets a really cool bird foot, and they re the poster really wanted you to know that that was going to happen. Because if you if you look up the Sinbad, bird it's about a bird foot. Like this lady, she is the main focus of the whole poster. She is the central figure. It's Evil Witch Zenobia, and she is like sassing out that bird foot like she is <laughs> going into town and she is put on put on her best bird foot and and she wants you to see it talk to the bird so, foot. <laughs> yeah it is huge it is like enormous um so anyway <clears throat> i don't know if quentin tarantino probably loved this poster i would yeah assume. um so yeah sinbad cool. in the eye of the tiger it's it's kind of like the least loved although it's i don't know it's my favorite so I think it's just Patrick Wayne. I just I think it's Patrick Wayne. He's he's just weak. I mean, he's he's not bad in the movie for Patrick Wayne. It actually probably is his best performance. But he just he could never get traction, um, despite being John Wayne's son and being in every movie John Wayne made. After a certain point, he he would always and be the he'd, he'd be the he'd be the uh, cavalry officer who'd come in, tell Wayne something, get yelled at, and then leave. Oh, really? That was especially. Um, I I know that I had read um, the guy. Uh, I don't remember his name, but the guy who played Sinbad in Golden Voyage, uh, John Philip Law, he was supposed to come back for this one, and something happened, and he 
he didn't or he couldn't or something. Um, which is a shame because I think he, he, he did a decent, none of the Sinbads are great. Um, like actor wise, he, he, he was decent. He looked good in the role. He had a beard. Um, he looked good in a turban. He was sort of so humorless though, that like Mm -hmm. he became uninteresting. At least Patrick Wayne's character was that like sort of debonair, like swashbuckler Errol Flynn sort of a, he was smiling and kind of cool, sort of a likable rogue sort of a type where uh, John Philip Law was just like so incredibly dead serious. Um, he wasn't bad, but I don't know. I don't think the only the, the only movie he movie. ever he ever expressed any sort of not even humor. He was he was never funny in anything. But the only movie where his character seemed like he not not had a sense of humor but might recognize a joke <laughs> was Barbarella. Oh, playing playing the blind uh, angel in that. He's um, he's okay in that because he's not he's not because he can't see he's not doing that John Philip Law thing which he especially was glaring at everyone in any scene. Yeah, in. yeah, that's pretty much it. He has an intense glare like he does. Yeah, and and, it, and, it's, and it's his only move. It is a move. Like I'll give yeah. it to him. <laughs> you can't move. deny it. It's there. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, maybe it was just the uh, maybe it was Tom Baker and Brownface that spoiled everything. I don't know, oh, but um, it is what it is. Eight Bit Alchemy, why don't Yo. you take us home, my friend? We got All one right. more. All right. So, Scott, I apologize. We have to talk no. about Clash of the Titans. <laughs> <laughs> my heart okay. will go on. Okay, I know it will. <laughs> I'm apologizing up front, but you know, your heart. I'm glad will persist um so i mean in in lieu of of trying to uh keep keep things brief but also making time for all the important stuff to talk about with clash of the titans uh this this movie was uh like we've said in 1981 uh, it's harryhausen's last film and as far as i'm aware it's the only movie that was in his pantheon that he actually had assistance he had reached the point where he was like, I'm going to need, you know, a couple other people to help me do some of the effects, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, kind of remarkable that it took the last film for him to make for that to come to that. I mean, Mighty Joe Young, obviously he, he worked with, uh, with his idol there, but I mean, other than that, everything was by himself. Like we've said, right. and some Over scenes 30 took years. So in yeah. some scenes would take him, you know, four or five months to do. Um, so it's great. Uh, it's great that he, you know, got to at least have that for his his kind of final piece there. Um, but yeah, so Clash of the Titans, 1981 film, uh, ma- you know, massive movie for a lot of people. You know, like love it or hate it, a lot of people tend to reflect on this movie really fondly. Um, now, I am I am purely speaking at this from a kind of objective perspective. You know, my first time watching this movie was just recently, um, so I did not grow up with this movie. Like I said, um, I did like it though, um, but I also didn't have as much expectation as a fan like you would, Scott. So for me, you know, this movie was enjoyable in a lot of different ways. Um, it was uh, directed by Desmond Davis and written by Beverly Cross uh, and produced by longtime producer, you know, cohort, as we've said, Charles Schneer uh, and Harryhausen. Um, 
the story, long and short of it, is the story of Perseus from Greek mythology. Um, you know, we've seen like a lot of kind of the movies taking inspiration from different mythos uh, as Harryhausen has made over the years um, and got away from that atomic age of stuff. Um, you're seeing more and more mythology based, which is, you know, a perfectly great subject matter to go with. Um, <clears throat> and uh, to be blunt, I feel like the plot of this movie is kind of convoluted. Um, when I was actually sitting down to just kind of summarize the movie, I was like, wow, there's like so much I need to kind of explain in order for it to make any sort of sense. Cause it's just like, it's like, it's typical Greek mythology, like, like gods shitting down each other's necks of like, <laughs> you did something I don't like, so fuck you. And then. I also disliked that, so I'm going to do something back. And it was kind of like a lot of back and forth. So, you know, Zeus, as he does, has an illegitimate son by seducing a woman uh, in the form of a, of a, a, a sparkling cloud of gold dust. Because what says, lay me down? Like fucking glitter. I mean, that is hot. Like, like just hot. disembodied <laughs> glitter. Like, do me. Do me on it right so it's such a weird fucking setup but yeah so he has a son with the with uh, the princess of argos king finds out gets pissed banishes the 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 princess and her son perseus zeus has none of that he's like no you don't do that so then he says poseidon you have that really big monster the kraken destroy argos please and he's like okay so Argos gets wiped off the map. And I mean, in a, a truly spectacular fashion, you get, I say, for the first time, I don't know, ever in a Harryhausen movie, you see the penultimate creature at the beginning of the movie, mm. um, which is like kind of cool to, to have that. You know, it's almost like a taste of things to come. It might be twisted as like, oh, that's lame. You already knew what was coming. But I think it was really effective because you get to see the impact of this creature. And it's looming because it destroys Argos. And then there's a series of events. Perseus kind of grows up. He um, ends up becoming, you know, uh, just kind of a victim of circumstance. Uh, the goddess Thetis, played by Maggie Smith, um, Professor McGonagall, for those of you who are into Harry Potter, uh, she ends up getting pissed off at Zeus because Zeus has cursed her son. Her son, Calibos, who has just been put in charge of a variety of Zeus's different like assets and things and just like, you know, this particular well that was important to him and like some, all this other some shit. Stocks. Some stocks, some bonds, some pegasi. Uh, he fucks it all up, um, to be blunt. Calibos just kind of ruins it all. He hunts all the winged horses to extinction except for Pegasus. He, he just sort of blows it on all the stuff that he's left in charge of. And Zeus is like, okay, well, that sucks. So I'm going to make you a monster for the rest of forever. <laughs> and that woman, that princess of Joppa, Andromeda, who you were like totally going to marry in five seconds, she's like all set now. She's She doesn't want anything to do with you. So he... Because you are like, gross now. You are I made nasty. You, I made you gross. You are undateable, dude. Yeah. You're nasty, dude. You're a left swipe for everybody. Um, <laughs> and so that really just ends up pissing off Thetis because she's like, you forgave all the atrocities of of 
Perseus's mother and you gave Perseus all these accommodations, but yet you're cursing my son into oblivion. And meanwhile, as the viewer, I'm like, well, yeah, but Perseus didn't like ruin a whole bunch of Zeus's shit. Calibos ruined a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah, he's getting punished. That feels kind of fair, actually. Um, but Thetis just gets mad and decides to put Perseus in Joppa, just totally transplant him from one place to another. And while in Joppa, Perseus learns about Andromeda. He receives a bunch of godly gifts because Zeus never stops throwing Perseus bones. He's just like firing bones away at this guy. He's like, dude, uh, we're going to leave everything to chance. But by chance, I mean... Uh, I'm going to grant him all these like godly abilities. Like he's going to get the sword of Aphrodite, the helmet of uh, Athena, the shield of, of Hera, all these things. And, and really just like, yeah, it's like when a rich kid says they, they built their billion dollar empire from, from the ground up. Yeah. And all the while, you know, it's like Perseus is just really like, he's a leaf on the breeze at, at this point in it. He's just going along. He has no agency, but he's, he's there. He's in Joppa. He learns about the princess and he learns about Calabos and that Calabos has been tormenting her. So the, 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 the plot of the rest of the movie is following him trying to, he, he ends up rescuing Andromeda, winning her affection, but then Thetis uh, gets slighted again because when Perseus and Andromeda are supposed to get married, Queen Cassiopeia is like, oh, my daughter Andromeda, she's so much more, her beauty exceeds even that of the goddess of Thetis. And it's like, you stupid ass, why would you say that? <laughs> why would you, you're in the city that this goddess Imbecile. governs. You and know you that they are, are jealous now, assholes. They all you know suck. how Greek gods work. They're all super vain. So, yeah. You 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 pissed her off. And so now she and lays they're down like, the ultimatum. They're all like um those Alexa devices in your home, they're always listening to you. They're always they listening all the time. <laughs> they're yeah. purely just listening no. for the words prettier than me. Or 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 you know, their own name is their activation phrase. And uh, yeah, so Thetis decides to rip the head off of her own statue. It falls to the ground, and then it animates and says this big ultimatum of you need to sacrifice Princess Andromeda in 30 days at this place to the Kraken, otherwise the Kraken's gonna destroy all of Joppa. Uh, and so then Perseus has to deal with this and 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 solve this whole problem. Uh, so you know, all along this huge adventure, there's there's all the amazing monsters that we are here for um, that Harry Housen has done. And uh, and so I kind of have like a, a rogues gallery. Um, so like I said, the first one that you see is the Kraken. Um, it's a giant sea creature. Uh, and and uh, it, it basically ensures that people behave and respect the gods because it's just kind of like, mm, don't make me pull out that Kraken. Don't make me release that Kraken. I will destroy the shit out of you. And, uh, and it's an awesome monster. I will it turn really this has... Athens around so fast. I will flip this Joppa on its head. Don't think I won't. Uh, it looks it looks unlike any Kraken you've seen in traditional media. Like, if you've mm -hmm. grown up with this movie, you know. But when you say the Kraken, a lot of people just think the giant squid. Um, they think something with, like, long tentacles, suction cups, whatever. Uh, and this is just not even kind of that monster. Right. Um, this monster is really its own thing. It's got this amazing, you know, like, scaly kind of body with these different, like, ridged fins on the back. And his mouth almost has, like... 
uh, yeah, Harry hasn't did like those jowls kind of thing. Like, yeah, he, always, he had like a lot the of bulldog times, jowls. He really, a few times. really dug that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think the Kraken's got one of the best, most unique kind of visages of any monster in cinema. It's so mm -hmm. singular. Um, yep, and he has and, four uh, arms, but the arms with hands at the end of them, but they're they're boneless. They're tentacle arms. Yeah, they're like okay. they have suction yep. cups on the underside, and they have hands, but they have no bones so as he's moving them it's like it's their their tentacles it I, as a, it, it was so long before i realized that it it definitely is not like an obvious feature yeah i mean i i feel like you know i was an adult when i realized he didn't have like it's like oh they're tentacle arms that's so cool mm -hmm. so different. really neat um but yeah, so you start with the Kraken, and then when uh, you get to Perseus is trying to free the tormented soul of Andromeda, the princess, uh, so that is being enacted by by Calibos's, like pet vulture. He just has this giant vulture that goes to her room every night and steals away her spirit from her sleeping body, brings it to his swamp, and then he just gets to like kind of be annoying for like a whole night like he doesn't <laughs> torture her he's just sort right. of whiny and he's yeah. like oh you loved me though and she's like yeah that's yeah i did at one point <laughs> like it's just sort of like <laughs> dragging an emotional like you know uh, through like an emotional mire and it's like Ugh. so it's tormenting for her um but this giant vulture is really cool uh i i didn't a, a lot of these monsters i didn't know about um the only ones i knew going into it were the kraken and uh and medusa um honestly all the other ones were kind of new to me um but yeah so the the giant vulture was really neat not in it too much uh it also the giant vulture as you see it bring it to calabos's lair calabos himself definitely is one of the monsters um I think it's neat too because Calibos is played by an actor in close-up scenes, and you have them in heavy makeup, and 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 then when you get like a wider shot, you have the Harryhausen effect with the tail whipping, you know, his very trademark tail whipping mm -hmm. pose, and um, and he's you know this kind of just bestial guy who has these two horns and just really really dark skin, and you know he just kind of looks monstrous. Um, and you know he's not like he's not really the coolest but he's he's just a driving force for the story like he does kind of keep things moving one way or another um mm -hmm. through some different scenes um mm -hmm. you also have uh pegasus uh the trusty winged steed and the last surviving winged horse of zeus after Ca after calibos hunted all of the rest of them i mean honestly i think that's what zeus is the most mad about you know he's like i had these really like sick society of winged horses and you like just killed you hunted them all man like you were supposed to watch out for them like who hunts horses what the fuck dude <laughs> what the hell are you doing he's like it's a bird and a horse it's the ultimate prey but anyway um so perseus tames pegasus uh and then proceeds to ride dirty across the land because who has a cooler ride than perseus right now flying around on pegasus uh Pegasus, obviously, you've seen in a million different in, you know adaptations of this creature. Uh, but I will say that the one in, in Clash of the Titans does feel unique. Uh, it's incredibly well animated. I think Pegasus looks like one of the best effects um, in the scenes that you get to see it. But also, um, its wings really remind me of like a bat wing that has feathers. 
Like it's less of a bird wing and it just has more of those like long pointed membranes that a bat wing would have, except they're covered in white feathers. Um, and it's really cool. I was, I was impressed that it has as much of a unique look as it does. Um, then later on in the movie, because Zeus just cannot stop giving Perseus more like, you know, bonuses and equipping him with the best gear. Uh, <laughs> he's like, hey, Athena, give Perseus your owl. And she's like, Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and Zeus is like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Are you give joshing him, me right now? Give him your owl. And she's like, oh, dude, I'm not going to give him my owl. But she can't say this. So she's like, yeah, sure. Um, whatever. And so she goes to <laughs> Hephaestus. And it's like, okay, Hephaestus, help me out here. Zeus never like pays that close of attention to anything. So <laughs> if you just make a robot, like automaton owl, and we give that to Perseus, he'll think we did what we asked him to, but I still get to keep my owl. And uh, and so Hephaestus is like, okay. So they do that. <laughs> and um, and so then Bubo's in the rest of the movie as like a little robot familiar and is honestly like super useful. There's so many times <clears throat> in movies where like a familiar will be a part of it and it's just comic relief or it's just, you know, this cutesy thing. And I mean, Bubo does serve those purposes too, but it also has like two super important scenes. Uh, one where it steals the lone eye from the Stygian witches, which is super, super clutch. And then one way at the end uh, when when Perseus needs to defeat the Kraken with Medusa's head and he just full on fumbles that shit. Like he drops it in the ocean and Bubo just swoops down and grabs it and gives it back to him and is like, dude, really? Seriously? Come on. Hmm. Like you're choking now. Like, like what if what if I wasn't here? Movie. What would you do if I wasn't what here? What would you do? That would be in the bottom of the ocean. So Bubo, honestly, <laughs> MVP, uh, VIP, saves the day. Uh, but Bubo's really cute. Um, Steve, I know you really like this character. Like as a kid, you loved like Bubo, right? Like didn't you um, say that you always always liked him a lot? Maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I was ever a big Bubo fan, but he's not. <clears throat> he's not quite the Jar Jar that I think his haters no. make him out to be. He's definitely used well in the movie, but he is certainly. He a, scenes, but he's a he's a divisive character. Um, yeah. he doesn't break anything for me, but he's not. He no. got more divisive as time went on <laughs> because I mean, there was a movie that slightly followed that. Slightly thereafter, in 1983, made by an uh, Italian director named Luigi Cozzi. Uh, it was called, it was Hercules with um, uh, Lou Ferrigno. And then there was okay. and there was a sequel to it. And they decided, uh, Luigi decided that Clash of the Titans was the future. And he ripped the crap out of it so badly that wow. this, the story of Hercules has lasers in it. And it has a robot owl that they basically just completely ripped off. So I oh kind of hate God. I hate Bubo retroactively, only because of all the crap that reminded me of him. Wow! In these two terrible movies with Lou Ferrigno. Jeez, um, man, that's super funny. Like to to think to be like, oh man, we gotta we gotta put a robot owl in our movie. Yeah. That's what it's lacking. It's so it's you know? so <laughs> different though. Uh, I. I can't hate it for the genre mashing. I just can't. I I, uh, I love the random sci-fi ness. 
Oh God, I've never seen this movie. Man, Lou Ferrigno is fucking. I've never seen this. Jacked. What the fuck? Oh yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. he has like it's, beach, it's, beach ball chest. Yeah, yeah it makes it's it not make good. biological sense. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, so yeah. Either way. Possible? So so, <laughs> Booba became more divisive for you, Scott, over time. Um, but I, I kind of liked him in the movie. Um, I thought yeah. he was cute, cute enough. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So so super useful. Um, then uh, yeah. So so. Basically, the story has her has Hercules. I want to say Perseus go to find the Stygian witches because he needs to know what can kill the Kraken. Because rather than trying to do anything else, he's just going to wait for the the you know the ultimatum to happen. The Kraken to get mm-hmm. summoned. And yeah, they're the, the chat with us feature. You just you just ask. Don't yep. look through the whole gigantic FAQ. Just <laughs> chat with us. Just chat with and us. speak it's much to better. a live operator now. Yes. Uh, if you Much have any, faster. you know, questions. So, so yeah, he goes to the Stygian wishes, and and they they're all set. But everybody who's anybody knows that the way you get information out of the Stygian wishes is you steal their eyeball. Um, and so Bubo yanks the eyeball, and he gets the info, and they are like, "Yeah, you have to you have to cut off the head of Medusa, and you have to use Medusa's head to turn the crack into stone," which is a super cool plot point. I love that. Mm, uh, it's really too. neat. It's really cool because also it feels kind of like the it's the Greek mythology version of Superman, where you're like, "Yeah, Medusa can just turn everything to stone. How does anyone beat Medusa? Medusa's just the the strongest shit ever, right? Like, like." Why aren't we using this more? Like you could turn anything to stone. Like it doesn't just stop working just because we're conveniently just done keep with the this head. story. Right. Eventually it's, like, it's gonna get gross, but right, right. Just keep the head. Like keep it on ice, but keep the head. Um, but yeah, so going to the island of the Isle of the Dead in the River Styx. Um, so the actually a creature that I didn't write down, but I'm going to mention right now because I just thought of it. So so uh Charon, the boatman uh, hmm. of the River Styx that brings oh, them yeah. to the Isle of the Dead is super fucking creepy and really cool. Uh, and I forgot to, to write a footnote for him, but yeah, I mean, you just get to see like this hooded figure and you, you know, you can tell that it's skeletal and then you just, I think see the mouth primarily. And then when you, when they arrive on the Island, they get off and then you see more of uh Charon's face and it's, it's super cool. It's a very effective, like creepy character that just is there and gone and doesn't linger, doesn't do anything. There's no, no fight. It's just a transaction. Just mm-hmm. need you to boat me over here. Um, and so, yeah, they go across the River Styx to the Isle of the Dead. And on this isle, they fight uh, the creature that is not named in the movie, but does have a very specific name. Uh, it's this two-headed dog creature called Dioskelos. And uh, it's not Cerberus, but it feels Cerberus adjacent. It's just Yeah, it feels like it's dog. a stand-in. With, yeah. like, it's it's like the the sextopus version, you know. It's, right. it's we right. we couldn't have we didn't all have three heads. For the third head. Yeah, right, right, totally, totally like that. And and it's it's weird because like it's, I think this is the only instance of this creature. Like it's not from Greek mythology, as far as I read. It was just made up by Harryhausen for this. Like it's yeah. But you're right. He's he's clearly supposed to be like a Cerberus, channeling a Cerberus thing. Yeah, Uh, and it's not overly large. It's about the size of a normal wolf. You know, maybe about the size of a quarter. It's it's not massive. Like it's not the the Cerberus from the Hercules Disney cartoon. But it's uh it's definitely like a big wolf, and that's just kind of like a cool fight scene. Um, there's some good effects with 
when Perseus stabs it, you know, the sword goes in and it starts bleeding. And that's one of those contact points that Harry Hassan was always trying to do. Um, and I thought that was really effective to see the, you know, the creature kind of bleeding as he slashed it. Um, and then, you know, okay, so this is the guard dog for, for Medusa's place. Now, Medusa's place is like the thing to see in this movie. Like we talked about it earlier being like a horror scene in a fantasy movie mm-hmm. and like i would argue that it's you do need to watch the whole movie for this scene to hit as hard as it does because the rest of the movie doesn't have this vibe at all whereas if you were to just go on youtube and watch this scene you'd be like oh that was cool but it wouldn't be as jarring as the juxtaposition of the rest of the like high adventure right, of right. clash of the titans to then this scene hits so much harder because suddenly you have the soldiers that are with Perseus getting turned to stone, trying their best, going into this very dark, like all, you know, dimly lit red flickering light of this temple. And they're getting turned to stone left to right. There's already people all over the ground that are dead and turned to stone and all this other stuff. So there's all sorts of failed attempts at whatever. And uh, and then you just have Perseus with uh, with this shield that he got at the beginning of the the movie. And uh, when he got the shield in the first place, Zeus was talking to him through it. And Zeus was like, "The shield will be, you know, the it'll save your life someday, or whatever. It'll be your destiny." Uh, and so he he needs to use this mirror finished shield, uh, which you know, uh, Scott, you mentioned. Do video games ruin how we expect movies to go? What I would I would say is that there's a surprising amount of of these movies that Harryhausen worked on that got that video games then pulled from later mm. because Zelda has had a mirror shield in it for as long as I can remember. And there's no way it's not referencing this. I mean, it's, it's very much like, okay, it's got a mirror finish. It's used to reflect light and you're able to, you know, kind of, he's able to look at Medusa and not turn to stone. And, uh, and you just have this really great sense of tension in this scene because there's, not a lot of sound it's like relatively quiet and you just have medusa i mean medusa's animation is incredible it's freaking insane like all the snakes on her hair her body her her you know i think she had 12 snakes i'm pretty sure it's 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 crazy it's like a mini hydra and then her weapon of choice was a bow and arrow which i thought was super different I mean, I don't. I totally. guess I don't know what I expected Medusa to wield per se, but I didn't expect her to be an archer, uh, and that made it way friggin' scarier because she just has to look at you to turn you to stone, but can also shoot you from a from anywhere. Right, right. So, so you're like Jesus. You know, how do I even get and the first person that close? dies is shot with an arrow? Yeah, right. Yeah, pretty sure the first yep. one. So it's like, oh my god, and you want to look to see where. The arrows are coming from, but then you're going to turn to stone. Like it's, yep. it's honestly yep. like a perfect combination. Like the Xenomorph. It's like, Oh, you got to kill it, but it's got acid blood. It'll explode in your face. It's right. like, no matter what you do, you're screwed, you know? Yep. 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 And, uh, and the, the sequences where they show, um, someone turning to stone, you see, uh, you see this zooming effect and it zooms in on Medusa's face and her eyes blast green and they turn to stone. But um, Steve, you had told me that the zoom effect was actually part of, you know, Harry Housen. It's not, they didn't take a camera and zoom in on Medusa. They, he had to make her appear larger, you know, however that was achieved. So 
I think the way I would say that is any camera movements, and that would be zooms or pans or anything like that. Um, if you're thinking about it today, you're like, oh, you animate the scene and then you do all the camera movements after. It's like, yeah, on a computer, that's not how he could do it. So he would have to, if he's going to zoom or if he's going to pan, he has to do it as he is animating. And it is what it is. So imagine how hard that is. So that's why right. he rarely ever did it. <clears throat> Almost all of his all of his shots uh, are static. Always have static cameras. Very rarely is there even something like a pan. There, there is a really great pan shot in Twenty Million Miles to Earth when they discover the Emir in the barn. It's really great, and it's yep. so easy to take that for granted, you know. But um, yeah, the zoom for Medusa. So he's animating twelve snakes. <clears throat> in her hair and her eyes and her face and her snarl and all this stuff and zooming a tiny bit more each time. Right. Like it's, it's kill me. I, I don't, I don't even understand it. Like right. The, the, it's, the it's level of skill impressive. is superhuman. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that scene is, is really worth the price of admission, but it is worth watching the whole movie for it. And then, um, and then after Medusa, honestly, the only other kind of new monster besides the Kraken again at the end, not new, um, but the only other new monster is uh, Perseus has a, a scene where he has Medusa's head wrapped up in his cloak and it's hanging from a tree and he's sleeping or, or whatever. And Calibos sneaks up. This, this whole scene to me felt so random. It felt just like what like they're just like we just need another fight we need another monster thing going on um so mm -hmm. there's you know medusa's heads in the cloak and calibos comes up and just stabs it i i don't know i don't know if he even knew what it was he's like let me get deader you're not right, dead just, enough <laughs> let me just stab this thing that i don't even know what's in it uh and then blood just gushes out onto the floor. Can we talk about the viscosity of Medusa's blood dude, for a second though? It's it's preposterous viscosity. It's it's, it's like it's like it's apple like, it's red apple pudding. Yeah, it's viscosity. red apple pudding. <laughs> it's it's like it's like apple puree but with thickened with corn syrup. Like it's so it's ultra thick. So gross. When it's when wicked Medusa gluten. gets her head cut off though, can we just real quick go back and her her, her body lashes for a second and then it just dumps and just a bleh. shit ton of blood. It's like it's like a paint can has just overturned. Yeah. yeah it's like blah, 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 blah. Oh man, it's so good. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um but yeah, so so this blood comes out and it pours down and I, I couldn't tell for sure. I've read I've read like differing uh, takes on what happens. But some people say the blood spawns these random scorpions. Uh, mm -hmm. My read was there were small scorpions already on the ground and that her blood mutated them. Okay. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. It, it's not really like you can tell. Always one wonder. Way or the other. Always wonder. <laughs> um, but randomly Medusa's blood has a uh, teenage mutant Ninja turtle esque mutagenic property. And it just turns these normal garden variety scorpions into jimungus scorpions uh that he has to fight um and and it's just you know they're just giant scorpions you know there's three of them it's an, it's it's a it's a solid fight it's impressively mm -hmm. animated um mm -hmm. but it's just like 
it again to me feels like what you said, Joe, about the skeleton fight happening after the Hydra. It's like we just had Medusa. That was the shit. And now we just have scorpions. Hmm. And it feels like underwhelming. Yeah. Um but it also feels yeah. like hasn't he done scorpions a million times? It's like, no, he never did. That was the only one. In right, all his movies, that was the only scorp he did a crab for a mysterious island, which we haven't mentioned at all. But this was yep. This was different. He hadn't done scorpions, but you're right. It's just a big version of a re a real thing, so it feels a lot less creative. But it is a cool right. sequence. It is a cool sequence, and I mean, I just I feel not like in the pantheon. Like it's not as no. I I feel like it should have gone. You know, Charon, scorpions, dog, Medusa, Kraken. <laughs> you know, we're talking about the video game structure here. So these just feel like a random group of enemies. Um, but anyway, it is cool. And, 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 you know, again, it's it's managing three at once that makes the effect so extra impressive. Um, mm -hmm. Like like yeah. the groups of skeletons and in, in, in the Argonauts. Um, and yeah, so I mean, that's kind of like, that. that's as far as I remember all of the primary, you know, creatures and things. Um, and then, you know, at the end, he turns, he uses Medusa's head, turns the crack into stone. Spoiler alert. I already told you. And uh, it saves the day, wins the princess. Everyone's happy hunky-dory. And that's the end of it. But, uh, I mean, I, I will say that it was, it's a, it's a fun movie. It really is. Like, it's, you know, it's early 80s, but it, it feels older than that which is kind of a weird thing to say, but it's like the effects and everything and the way that it's produced and like the, the pool of actors that are in this movie don't feel mm -hmm. like, Oh yeah, this is an eighties movie. You know, it's like, um, it still kind of feels like a seventies yeah. movie. Um, yeah, and I think that's really cool because it doesn't lose that Harryhausen feel. Um, it very much has that. And it's got that kind of like soft, like filter over it. I mean, I know it's not a filter, but just like the way that it's filmed, like everything has like this kind of, yeah. Like the soap opera to feel to it. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It just, it just looks unlike yeah. how things look now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it's a great movie. I, I definitely enjoyed my time with it. And uh, the special effects were, were really excellent to, to get to witness all those, variety of different wings and what what a what a tour de force you know for for the final harry Housen film definitely mm. showed his stuff yeah man i mean i think he went out with a bang for sure but um yeah you know, i mean you changed my mind i think i'm gonna re i haven't seen it since it came since i saw it in the theater Still really refused to watch it yep just never wanted to now Here i'm curious go. now i feel like maybe it's time to revisit it you know, I, I think a lot of these movies are like that, though. Like, you know, they, they take a, a few watches and uh, like, I, I mean, I, even just rewatching Seventh Voyage for this episode, um, that was one of the ones that I watched the second time. I'd only seen it once and um, I enjoyed it much more the second time. Like, I remembered being annoyed by the genie kid so much. I'm mm -hmm. like, I don't know, it's just the one of this. The Cyclops and oh yeah, that genie, genie kid. kid. But he was—he only had like he's, four lines in the right. Movie. He's not even in it that. No, much. he's like but barely like, in it. That he, that was he such a annoying. thing I remembered. <laughs> but like, it's not as bad as I thought it was, and it was there was actually a lot more fun than I I remembered, and uh, and I I I quite enjoyed it the second time. I I, I totally appreciated it more. And uh, <clears throat> that makes me want to go back to Mysterious Island because that's that's one I've only seen one time too, and yep. I thought it was okay. 
and uh and the giant stuff, bee is cool giant bee is awesome and the crab is great too the crab is yeah. really cool but um so just uh just really quick i know we're running so freaking long but uh jim danforth is the man who was uh raised like assistant on this movie and he was in charge of pegasus he did almost all of pegasus and i think he also did bubo if he isn't the guy who did bubo i know it wasn't ray so it's possible there was a third person but i can't remember yeah i think you're right i think you're right steve i i do remember them saying there was a dedicated person that did the bubo effect on jim Dan. okay so, name yeah, so it might have been so so Jim Jim Danforth is uh also uh an amazing amazing artist. He he's, it's sort of one of those things where like all the credit goes to Harryhausen but it's not like the art form truly stopped evolving. Um if you look at the works of uh Leica like you know um Coraline and all those movies uh, Paranorman and Box Trolls and um what are the other ones Kubo and the Two Strings and I mean yep. I, I would not say that missing link. It, it, it peaked at Harryhausen. I just think that he's the most important of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, I think the Integral. artists at Leica are more impressive, and they they come up with these incredible set pieces that I can't even believe. Or you know, they're animating these giant things, and they'll show you the scale and the ending of. Uh, I remember, I think it was Kubo and Two. Strings. There, there's this big skull thing they fight, and it's like the yeah. thing must have been like ten feet tall or something. I mean, it's like what that, the hell? That how effect was, it, was unreal. How the hell is it that big? And they're like animating it. It's just kind of like you know, how far can we push this kind of a thing? But I, th- I honestly think that Jim Danforth did surpass Ray in his uh, just strictly his animation um, uh, prowess. And I would say that the movie to watch is when dinosaurs ruled the earth um the it's it's kind of like his own version of 1 million years bc but there's a uh, there's a the, the the famous dinosaur from it is this i don't think it has a species name it's just i know it as the mother dinosaur because there's a, a, a sequence with babies and eggs and stuff and it's definitely the mother dinosaur uh, i don't really know if it has a official name honestly amazing um smooth smoother than your typical harryhausen you know, frame rate sort of thing. Um, really, really impressive. Jim Danforth is a protege and he went on to be an amazing animator. And I definitely just wanted to mention his name. Um, before we get out of here, we do have one more thing for you. It is almost time to catch the horizon. I know, I know we've been on for a while, but before we say goodbye, let's go to this. Hey, you like old games? Yeah. Yeah. So do we. But the thing is, there are new games that actually play like their old games, but they're new. Anyway, it's time to check one of those out. This is Retro Nouveau. What's up, everyone? This is Nintendo, and I am back with a Retro Nouveau. Mm. Uh, it's a little different. Uh, although, we've, I've mentioned this game before on a previous Retro Nouveau last year, I believe. Um... But uh, this particular game came out with a DLC that I really, really, really want to talk about because it's amazing. And that is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge Dimension Shellshock. So basically what this is, it's just a DLC and it's just, it's just a survival mode, okay? So yeah, survival mode, not really my thing. But 
This one is really fun because there's an incentive. So you play through um, like certain levels. Like you're basically just like going from dimension to, to dimension. Like like one one level you'll be uh, in the, the the in the comics, the black and white comics from okay. like way back. Or or you'll you'll show up at uh, at some eight bit level or whatever. And it's just like really, really cool, like different varieties and whatnot. Um, and uh, one of the, the cool things is that uh, they added two new characters. Uh, you, you have Karai, which we've mostly known her from like the, the tournament fighters or whatever. This, that was our introduction to her. Then they eventually, you know, add her to the story in the, in the comics and the, 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 uh, the 2003 TV show. Um, she is freaking amazing. I, I think she is my favorite character. Wow. Nice. Uh, which is really shocking. Um, she is just so much fun. She's, it's really seems like she's overpowered, but Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't care. She's just so much fun to play. It's amazing. So, so fun. Um, and of course, finally, a playable Yusaki Yojimbo in a actual Ninja Turtle game. Yeah. And he is also amazing. Like, I am so pleased with this DLC. Um, which you which you have to pay for. It's like eight bucks to pay for. Um, but such a deal. It, it is a deal. It, it's it's really cool. You know, you add a, a, a survival mode. So the whole point of the survival mode. Right, so the story is that the nutri the neutrinos they show up at the turtles den. They cr- the crash their the pizza party, and uh, they're like, "Oh, Shredder's trying to conquer the the multiverse and whatever." So everyone like you know joins forces and they just try to stop the Shredder uh, from taking over the, the multiverse. So there's like a separate story with this uh, survival mode. So, so you have like yeah. the, the the arcade, and then story mode, and then dimensional shell shock, which it has its own very own story, which is awesome. Like you don't see that in games. It's always just Sparrow Moses, whatever how long you, you last, and that's it. And with this, so you clear a level, and two portals will show up. Sometimes you'll uh, one portal will show uh, like crystals. So the whole point is you have to collect crystals. Like the first level is like you have to collect like thirty. 30 crystals and then next level 50 crystals and then 60 crystals and so on and so forth. And uh, once you, you know you, you lose or whatever, you get to figure out you know, how uh, how your character character is leveled up. So you can level up your characters in this as well. And what's cool is that you can unlock uh, like different pal- uh, uh, colors like <clears throat> excuse me, like, yeah. like, like um like a color, yeah, the color palettes. Like they like can get the, the yeah. NES colors, the Sega Genesis colors, Game Boy, arcade, comic book, cartoon. Like, wow, it's different for each character. So it's like, you no, know, so if you're fun. playing, so if you're playing as like a, uh, uh, like say Leonardo, so you get to mm-hmm. unlock all of his colors. So it's not like okay, you play through Leonardo. It's like oh well, I unlocked the color for this other character. No, it's just specific for that character that you're using, which is really fun. So, some of the portals will show a boss, like like a just the, the the face of the boss, and you enter that, and you get to play as that 
boss for um for a level wow and they have their own they the, the bosses have their own health bar along with the, the whatever other character you're currently using so once they want their uh power or life or whatever you just revert back to whatever character you're using oh, so you get to play okay. as you get to play as rocksteady bebop um uh, trice the, the triceratons uh and oh. shredder you can play as shredder and i have to say <laughs> the shredder is a blast yeah. he is so cool like they added like new throw moves for him like they add like so much like animations for all these bosses just for this dlc nice and it is this so much fun it's I highly, highly recommend spending the, the, the $8. It's really worth yeah. it. Like I said, you know, there's an incentive. It's not just how long you can survive and like, oh, yeah, beat this time or whatever. No, you earn shit. Yeah. Which is which is amazing. I love that. And um, what's also really challenging is that you know, like with survival mode, like you can last for as long as you can, but like with each level, whatever health you have left is what you go on to the next level with. But Sometimes when the, the two portals open up, one will show invincibility or a pizza that refills up your, your health so you can, you know, you'll last longer or whatever. Or sometimes you'll see, like, different types of crystals. Like, you see, like, crystals of 10 or crystals of 30. So it's like, well, you want to get through the level, so you want to pick the highest uh, crystal count. And uh, it is just so much fun. It's, it's really challenging, too. So I never nice. thought in a million years I would ever enjoy a survival mode, ever. And yeah, it's never it's been my thing either, but man, that, that's some seriously cool stuff to earn. And being able to play as the bosses, oh my god, I finally that's get to be a, a Triceraton. Right, right. The only was, other Triceraton that was play. no, never was it, no, he was never playable. There was a Triceraton boss you couldn't play as in the Genesis Tournament Fighter. And he sucked, right. he looked like crap. Yeah, but like yeah. I think that was the only time he's ever been even. Yeah, and he wasn't. I know he wasn't playable. I know he wasn't. He was like yeah. you know one of the. He was like the second to last boss or something. Yeah, the just like the, boss, just like yeah. the Rat King. You couldn't be yeah. the Rat King in the Super Nintendo one either. Yeah, or cry. Let's use like some kind of cheat code or something. Right. Um, whatever. That's but, so yeah. fun. Yeah, that's the. That's nice. Dimensional, that's Dimension Shell Shock for this Retro Nouveau Redux. Awesome, dude. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. Well, but we have been here for a really long time. Guys, thank you so much for coming on this incredibly epic journey. Um, before we get out of here, Scott, do you want to promo the show one more time? Sure. Uh, if you're looking for anything remotely like this, but a lot shorter, uh, check us out. We're at the slumgullion.com. That's our website. And I have a Substack where I write mean but funny movie reviews, one per week. It's called Better Living Through Bad Movies. And that's at uh, clevenger.substack.com. And you can also check out Scott's book, Better Living Through Bad Movies, which has been out for a number of years. I enjoy my copy. You can enjoy yours as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, Nintendo 8 bit alchemy, thanks for coming along. I'm gonna get us right sure. on out of here. 
that was a lot of fun though. So thank you all for being here. And uh, thank you, Scott, for coming on, coming back on. That was a My hell pleasure. of a good time. And I hope we didn't keep you up too far past your bedtime. Yeah, you guys are on the East Coast. <laughs> the shank of the evening yeah, here. It's, yeah, right. It's, le- it's like almost 11 here. For you, you're like, oh, it's 740. <laughs> yeah, that's Whatever. right. Um, Although my wife is texting me going, uh, dinner? Should we be doing dinner? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, what the hell? Who the hell are these what people? Food is? Uh, <laughs> oh, she. <is. laughs> All right. So um, I don't I don't want Mrs. C to set you on fire or do anything harmful <laughs> to you. So I, I'll get us right on out of here. Um, that wraps up the episode, guys. So if you haven't jumped ship by now, we certainly hope you've enjoyed this week's journey over the treacherous waters of all the things that made growing up awesome. If you like what you've heard, please hit that little subscribe button and like us on Facebook, as well as being part of the Inebriart Podcast Network. Retrodoxibus is a full-fledged member of the Dorkening Podcast Network. So if you get a chance, please check out our sister shows like Epic Tales from the Sewers with Justin Cooper, Comic Paradox, Paradox, which I can never say every time I, I always say it wrong. It's not a hard word. Shark Bites, The Dork Knight, Hooked on Movies, Talking Game and Tech, Nerds of Unusual Origin. Oh, there's tons of great shows on The Dorkening. So check out thedorkening.com and be sure to just listen to all your heart's content because it's good and you'll like it. And that's the end of that. And uh, be sure to also support our deadly... S- <laughs> Our deadly sponsor, I was going to say. Our killer, <laughs> our killer sponsor, Deadly Grounds Coffee, God, which God, is, of course, coffee to die for. I have been your host. My name is All Hallows Steve. And uh, we have all released the Kraken, but we're going to put them, we're going to jam them back in the box in the crate. We're going to crate that Kraken for the evening and get out of your hair. So you guys uh, all have yourself a pleasant evening. And uh, it's a sad thing that your adventures have ended here. Good night. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com i think we should just uh do what the giant claw does and measure everything in battleships <laughs> it's three battleships away it's, it's everything you i i recently I think that movie is the size of a battleship everything I mean, they say I saw I recently saw a, a, like a cut together clip montage of all the times that they measure something in the size of the battleship. And they, they literally say it like five, six times. And like, they are size, very it's big they, as a battleship. And, and they, they they have very uh, they have very different, varied feelings about battleships, because some people find battleships an occasion for extreme sarcasm. Oh, well, was it like as big as your battleship? Fuck you. Right. Battleships are empirically a certain size. So yeah, no, that would that's hilarious. It's like I just expected um uh the lead to walk in, y'all. Let me get grab some shoes real quick. All right, what size are you, sir? My feet are the big as a battleship. All right, well that'll be tough. Well, we have it in a battleship we wide. St- we still gotta do the measurement. We still gotta <laughs> battleship wide. I like spectator battleships. I like <laughs> battleships are not subjective, goddammit. <laughs>